Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded on February 28th, 2019. 8.58 p.m. is the time. This is Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We're on usually every week, not always the same day, trying to get back to Wednesday. The last week was Friday. This week is Thursday. I'm hoping next week will be Wednesday. In the meantime, I want to tell you about a free roll. $100 we have to give away tonight. And it already started, but you can still get in with a full stack all the way until 9, 10 p.m., which is not a long time from now, but you still have some time. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account there, and you need to uh, get permission before playing. Otherwise, if you don't get permission, it's just a one-time permission, but if you don't get permission, you won't be able to get in. You also have to know the rules to qualify for the free money. Look at those rules at PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to read the rules. You must either PM Belly Buster, that's Belly Space Buster on the forum, or you can get a hold of me if he's non-responsive, but I really prefer you do it through him to get access to the free roll. We do this to prevent multi-accounting. This week, again, $100 being given away, cash money. I'll send it to you by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, by, well, you can think of some other ways I might be able to send you money that you might win from this. Maybe a service that people have been using to pay for things on the internet. For Cash app. Go to cash.me to get the cash app. Free way to send money back and forth. I can even send you a code to get $5 if you sign up for it. So these are ways you can get paid, and it's real cash money. $50 for first, $25 for second, $15 for third, $10 for fourth, $50, $25, $15, and $10 are the prizes, all donated by Pooh, $100. It would have been 200 if we had the show yesterday. He just decided on a whim that he wanted to hear radio this morning. So he wanted us to record it last night, and he could hear it this morning. I told him... Too late. He, he mentioned this like at about 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. But I told him we're going to have a show the following day, today, and he said, okay, I'll give you 100 So, okay, good enough. Thank you, Pooh. I appreciate the $100, and you're the sole contributor to the free roll tonight. And that makes a pretty decent pool, especially because we don't get a whole lot of people, because most of the people who listen to this show listen to it in the archives and not live. Now... If you want to listen to the show, there's various ways to do so, as always. You can listen live on PokerFraudAlert.com itself through the radio tab. You can listen live on the TuneIn app. You can use Amazon Alexa to listen live. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. If you want to listen live, you can also use the call to listen line, which does not require a computer a smartphone, the internet, a data plan, none of that stuff is necessary. Just call 605-313-0736. Sorry, 605, not 615-605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. It's located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. All you need is any phone in the world that can dial a phone number. That's it. And you just listen. Never buffers. It has a no buffering guarantee. 
an easy way to listen to the show live. And when the show's not live, you can call it and listen to one of our streaming reruns, which run on there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It just picks an episode at random and runs it. Then when that's over, it picks another episode at random and runs it. We have almost 300 episodes in our library. In fact, we have more than that, I think, after, if you include Brandon's shows. But even of this main Poker Fraud Alert radio show, I think we're almost up to episode 300 already. So it'll just pick one at random all the way back seven years through now. That's the call to listen line. If you want to listen in the archives, you can do it through iTunes, through Google Play, the TuneIn app, the Stitcher app. You can play the MP3 file directly from PokerFraudAlert.com. Just go to the radio forum or just go to the radio page and click the MP3 button. Or you can use Amazon Alexa to listen in the archives. You can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast on TuneIn. If you throw the, throw the word podcast in there, then it will go to the last episode and start playing it. Those are ways to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio that we have already completed. So a lot of ways to listen. If you need another way to listen, let me know, and I'll see if I can add it. You have seven more minutes to get into the free roll, and then that's it. We're going to have Trader Ruski tonight. We almost had Calwatt. Calwatt even took a nap to be able to be awake for this show, but then uh, he had a tough day, so he was unable to make it. But he wants to come back. He does want to come back, and I know a lot of people here want him to come back. A few don't, but uh, the vast majority do. The vast majority really like Calwatt on the show, and I agree. I even tell the critics that they're wrong, that he's he's very good for the show. And uh, I, I enjoy the back and forth. I enjoy the banter with him. But glad to have Trader Ruski tonight. And we may even have a call in from Bad Guy. He claims he's going to call in, and I'll let him know when it's time to do so. If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is a mountain about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. The number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary telephone located on the top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. So those are ways you can call the show. But please wait until we're in between segments or I open up the phone lines to call. Don't just call and interrupt me or I won't take your call. And if you hammer the phone lines over and over, I will block your number. So don't do that either. Don't do that either. Here's the agenda tonight, and then we will get going. I'm trying to go faster with the intro to the show, so this way my voice doesn't run out as early. Though I don't think tonight's going to be a really long episode. That's what I believe from the agenda we have listed. Caesars and DraftKings have entered a mobile sports betting partnership. You may say, who cares? Well, no, this is actually pretty big. Now you're going to be able to use DraftKings to bet on sports in a lot of different states. That is basically wherever sports betting is legal and where Caesars has an existing license. I'll explain why they made this partnership and how it benefits both companies. We're going to start a new segment this week called What Would Druff Do? I'm not sure we're going to have it every week, but we'll have it sometimes at least. What would Druff do comes from listeners and forum posters who 
ask what would I do in certain life situations that they got into or people they know got into? Because sometimes people wonder, especially when it has to do with uh, dealing with businesses, with customer service matters, things like that. Things where they say, how would Druff handle it? So I will tell you how I would handle these things tonight. What would Druff do is a story, a true story, I believe, posted on the Vegas Casino Talk forum, which I also own, about someone staying at Harrah's and the door to the bathroom broke. And the person got charged $1,500 on their credit card for it. And to add insult to injury, they got injured from the door breaking. It really was insult to injury, and then they got charged for it. So I'll tell you what I would have done in that situation, and I'll give advice to that person on how to handle it from this point forward. Speaking of Caesars and money-changing hands, Jeff Boski. A vlogger, I like to say vlog, vlog just sounds strange, V-L-O-G, but he's a popular poker vlogger, or vlogger as I like to say. He took a double payment for a World Series of Poker Cash in 2018, got away with it for some time, but found recently he was temp banned from Caesars until he paid back the money. I will play a portion of his vlog, yes I said vlog. And I will comment on it, and I'll comment on the whole situation. And my take on this is probably different than a lot of his viewers' take on this. New Jersey casinos, a lot of them offer online gambling. It is legal in New Jersey not just to offer online poker, but to offer online gambling, casino gambling. Someone found that the online casinos in New Jersey had the fairly well-known Ocean Magic slot. And the big deal about Ocean Magic is it's actually exploitable. And when I say exploitable, I don't mean you can cheat it. I mean there's a way to tell when it's positive expectation for the player and when it's not. So the players who discovered this took advantage of it, and they won a lot of money. And in some cases, they were unable to get that money off. We will talk about whether that's even legal to do, that is for the casino to do. I'll tell you the story about what happened, and one of the people involved in the story is a frequent listener to this show. So that makes it especially interesting to me. I'm having an ongoing debate on Twitter. This time, not about drama. This time, it's nothing personal. This time, I'm not fighting with anybody, but it's a philosophical debate about Las Vegas and what might be costing Las Vegas visitors. And the bigger part of the debate is, this is really where I disagree with the author of an article that I responded to, and it really touched off a big debate going back and forth between him, myself, and various others now, is since the casino games in Vegas have degraded, They've, they have a lot higher house edge than they used to. Is that hurting Vegas or might it be helping Vegas? So I'll tell you about that discussion and where I stand on it. Wynn got fined $20 million over their sexual harassment issues. I'll tell you more about that when we get to that segment. Baseball spring training has started and Major League Baseball is very unhappy that spring training games can be bet on in 
legalized sports books in the U.S., especially since there's more of them now than there used to be, since there's other states now involved. They're attempting to stop it. I'll tell you how that's going. Alleged organized crime figure Paul Fua has beaten bookmaking charges. You may say, we've already talked about this. He was arrested for running a sports book, his own little illegal sports book from Caesars. But that's already over. He already beat those charges. So why am I talking about this again? Well, there's a second case that he just beat in Macau. I'll talk about that and I'll talk about its implication on those crazy high nosebleed stakes games that go in Macau. Finally, Poker Stars has banned seating scripts and automatic pre-flop range tools that help people know what to do pre-flop during hands. The seating scripts allows them to seat in the games where fish are present very quickly and get the best seats in the game. These have all been banned by Poker Stars. I'll tell you how I feel about that. That's our agenda tonight. If you're not in the free roll yet, unless you can go back in time a minute, you're not going to get in. We will try to reach Trader Ruski, and then we will get going. Ding, 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 ding. I hate these sound effects. I wish it would stop. There'd be a way for me to turn it off. But Microsoft ruins everything they touch. What's oh. happening, Drop? Trader Ruski, hello. Thank you for coming on and uh, sparing me from listening to further Skype ringing tones. Which, which I hate. Okay. I, I wish... Like, why not at least give me the ability to turn that off? Of all the things they take away, why why force me to listen to Skype sounds? Why? What's even the design reason behind that? I understand why they're simplifying the interface and killing features. I, mean, I don't understand, but I, at the same time, I, I see kind of what they're doing. They want to make Skype simpler for the average person, and they're dumbing it down. But, but why force you to listen to sounds? Why not at least let you turn them off? Not everybody wants to hear sounds. Not everybody has to hear that cute Skype ring. It, it gets annoying after a while, especially if you're broadcasting something. You just want to put someone on without that obnoxious thing interrupting the broadcast. It's stupid. But I'm glad you picked up the phone, so that is over. So we're going to get going here. And I want to talk about Caesars and their partnership with DraftKings. And even if you're not a sports better, you may find this topic interesting. At least I hope you do, because it's our lead story this week. Caesars and DraftKings both have a, a different problem when it comes to the newly legalized sports betting situation in states other than Nevada. Just to quickly review, last year... A long-standing law was changed to allow states to decide if they want to have legal sports betting. Prior to that, full legal sports betting could only exist in Nevada and nowhere else. It was the, the only law I know of on the federal books that allowed one state to do things that the other 49 could not. I, I can't think of anything else that's ever been like that. But uh, that's gone now, too. So that any state that wants it can have it, and all the different states are now deciding if they want sports betting, and the ones that do are, some are on the path, some have already done it. It's uh, constantly evolving, but it's evolving in the way that more and more states are legalizing sports betting. 
Now, when I say legalizing sports betting, that doesn't mean that the bookie down the street can now legally offer you sports bets. It means that licensed entities can offer the sports bets, and they have to get the license to do so. And usually that license is tied to an existing brick-and-mortar casino license that they would already have in the state. So, Caesars, as you might guess, they have a lot of brick-and-mortar casino licenses around the country. Caesars has a lot of properties. I think that they have properties in uh, 13 states with either legalized sports betting or expected to be legalized sports betting. So they, they have the licenses. The licensing is not a problem for them. They're, gonna, they're already sitting pretty with that. However, where they lack is mobile betting. They do have a mobile app you can use in Nevada. In fact, it's, it's funny that I'm mentioning this now because I just signed up for it, like uh, around the Super Bowl time. I haven't used it yet, but I just signed up for it. In fact, I put the minimum of $5 in there. You had to do that to get it going. And those mobile apps you can only use when you're physically standing in Nevada. So that's been around for some time, but it's not all that sophisticated. It doesn't have a very large customer base. Uh, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass because in order to get mobile sports betting, you have to physically show up at a Caesars property. You have to go through uh, an application process. It's not tough. It's just a little bit cumbersome. And, 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 and then once you do it, you can only use it while you're in the state of Nevada. So a lot of people don't even bother. A lot of people, if they're in Nevada visiting, they just go, okay, I'm just going to go place it as a physical sports book. Uh, people who live in Nevada, they, they do get this if they bet sports, but it's not it's not ideal. They're, they're not really uh, doing that well with that app. So in New Jersey, which is one of the states which has legalized sports betting as of last year, there are a number of companies that are allowed to offer sports betting legally. And one of them is DraftKings, which you probably know started off as a fantasy sports betting site. That is, you'd, you'd bet on fantasy sports contests, and it was legal because of a carve-out in the law allowing fantasy sports, and they kind of exploited that to make what they were doing technically legal, even though it was uh, somewhat gambling, somewhat skill-based. So DraftKings got very large. They're one of the two big ones. A lot of companies attempted to get going with this, but really only DraftKings and FanDuel survived. So DraftKings is very large, and they have a very big customer base who signed up not for sports betting, because they weren't offering that then, but, but for uh, fantasy sports for money. And they, they had uh, daily fantasy sports contests, which were very popular, where you wouldn't have to invest a whole year in fantasy sports. You, could, you can have a contest that lasts one day or longer, you know, so they're, they're, this has become very popular in the United States. There's been a lot of questions over the last few years about its legality, but we're not going to talk about that here. Bottom line is DraftKings is pretty legit and accepted as a legal site. Yep, we lost Trader Ruski. Try to get him back. So it's pretty legit and accepted as a legal site in the U.S., and... DraftKings was able to get a license in New Jersey to offer sports betting. Now, Caesars has one too, as does uh, 
another I, I think at least one other company has a, a license to offer mobile sports betting there. But DraftKings was the clear winner. Welcome back, Trader Risky. Hey, sorry, Jeff. It's the wrong button. No problem. So DraftKings was it was the clear leader in New Jersey. And Caesars took notice of this. Now, why was DraftKings doing better? Why were they easily the leader in Nevada? Well, DraftKings had a very large customer base that they could already market to. People who were already signed up. They didn't have to do anything further. They could use their existing DraftKings account. They're in New Jersey. And you could market to these people directly. And as you might guess, people who are interested in betting on daily fantasy sports, a lot of them are also very interested in sports betting. It's, it's a, there's a big-time crossover there, very big-time crossover. So a customer list of daily fantasy sports players is very, very valuable to a company that operates a sportsbook. So DraftKings became a sportsbook. And not surprisingly, they were the clear leader in New Jersey. So then why do they need Caesars? Why, why would they ever partner with Caesars? They're, they're cleaning Caesars' clock in New Jersey in the, in the legalized online sports betting market. So why would they need Caesars if they're already beating them so badly? Well, what does DraftKings not have? DraftKings does not have existing casinos around the country. DraftKings is going to have a hard time getting access to getting themselves a license in many of these other states that only want to give these licenses out to existing brick-and-mortar casinos. So DraftKings must partner with some brick-and-mortar casinos in these states in order to get such a license to offer the sports betting. Now, they could go around the country and try to find various casinos to partner with them and probably be successful, or they could just go to Caesars and say, look, you guys have a ton of properties around the country and a ton of licenses everywhere. How about we just partner together? Now, I don't know who approached who, but I know that a deal has been done. Caesars, as part of the deal, bought a piece of DraftKings. They won't reveal how much. But they bought a piece of DraftKings, so now Caesars does own part of DraftKings. Again, I don't know how much. DraftKings will be using Caesars' existing license to offer sports betting in the states where Caesars has properties and where sports betting is or will be legal. And DraftKings will basically be operating it. But Caesars will get a healthy piece of the profits. So if you think about it, everybody wins, well, except for the sports bettors who lose. Caesars now just gets profits rolling in from DraftKings without really having to do very much. They, they might have to market some of it too. I don't know whose responsibility the marketing is, but Caesars can just sit there and let their licenses be used by DraftKings and just have pretty much guaranteed money rolling in with very little to no risk or effort. 
And DraftKing now has instant access to most of these new legalized sports betting markets in the United States. And Caesars no longer has to worry about playing second fiddle to DraftKings, who has a superior customer list as far as who is, who is interested in sports betting. Caesars has a very, very valuable customer list in Total Rewards, which is now called Caesars Rewards, by the way. But they have a very, very valuable list in that. But these are casino players, not necessarily sports players. And yeah, they can market to all of them, but it's not as effective as directly marketing to people you know are very likely to be interested in sports betting. That's where DraftKings really has an advantage. And now they're together on this one. So they, they've really filled in each other's gaps. Caesars filled in the licensing gap. DraftKings filled in the operational and customer base gap. So this is good for both of them. Now, we've talked a lot on this show about all the well-documented operational fails that Caesars has had. I've, I've talked about some that have just occurred in general. I've talked about some I've experienced myself. Uh, we've had a lot of time laughing at Caesars here. There's been a lot of laughter about Caesars and Caesars properties on this show over the years. There's, there, this sound effect has been overused when talking about Caesars. <laughs> In fact, you expect it. it. It'd be like a drinking game to listen to my segment about Caesars and wonder how many times I play. Because <laughs> it's true. They, they do a lot of stupid things that are worth laughing at. But DraftKings, they've also had plenty of embarrassing moments themselves. They, they've done a lot of stupid and cringeworthy and head-scratching things in their brief time in existence. Even in their even shorter time, in the sports betting market, they've already screwed up something badly, which we already talked about in this show, that NFL betting contest where they completely messed it up and, and really screwed some people at the very end who were uh, competing for big money, and now they have lawsuits about it because some people are claiming that if they hadn't screwed up, then they would have won... One million dollars. So uh, DraftKings has screwed up some very simple and elementary things. They've, they've made some boneheaded mistakes. Uh, they also have made some PR mistakes. And then they've had to correct some of the PR mistakes. Remember the time that they accidentally offered a, a crazy line in live betting that was way, 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 way advantageous by many, 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 many times to the, whoever caught it. And then some people quickly placed some bets that won for like tens of thousands of dollars or like a $100 bet. And they didn't want to pay them at first. And then when it, the story went all over the, the country and this became a big, a big deal – then they quickly reversed course and paid out the money. The stupid thing, this is over like a matter of like $80,000 total. So they should have just paid it and made sure this didn't happen again. Instead, they, they made fools of themselves and made themselves look like they don't pay winning betters, which is the last thing you want to have the reputation for when you're a sports book. But they've done a lot of other stupid things. And of course, there was that huge scandal a few years ago when DraftKings and FanDuel were allowing their employees to play on the other sites. They couldn't play on their own sites, but they could play on the other sites. And then these employees could use proprietary data on the 
fantasy moves by people on their own site to tailor how they play on the other site, assuming that with a mass number of people, it's probably pretty similar. So they had unfair access to information, these employees, on their own site that allowed them to have a big edge on the other side. And sure enough, you know, some of these players were killing it. And that was super unethical, and they didn't handle that very well. There's been a lot of stupid things DraftKings has done over time, and they haven't even been around that long. So some people are wondering, uh, is this a marriage of incompetence? Is this like watching two alcoholics or two drug addicts getting married? Or, or two bumbling fools getting married? Maybe that's a better example here. Where by themselves they're bad enough. Imagine putting them together. So I don't know. Caesars is pretty good at, at, at seeking their own level. <laughs> when they make these partnerships, it seems like they often partner with companies that have the same type of issues they do. I'll give you another example. Caesars and their partnership with Norwegian Cruise Line. I know both companies really, really well, and I've used both companies a whole lot over the years. I've become experts on both companies, and I can tell you it's amazing how similar they are. It's amazing amazing how much fail both of them have. It's amazing how many stupid things both of them do. It's amazing operationally how both of them just will screw up in ways that you'd never think they could. I used to say with Caesars that if, they, if there's a new way to fail, Caesars will find it. But what's funny is they also have similar strengths. Where Caesars and Norwegian Cruise Line are also very good marketing-wise. They're both good with coming up with innovative new concepts that end up becoming the standard in their respective industries. So they are good. At, it's like they're, they have the same strengths and same weaknesses, so it's appropriate they're partners. But whenever I visit a Caesars property or whenever I take a Norwegian cruise, I always come in thinking, okay, what's the fail going to be this time? And it, it, it's rare that I, I complete my stay or complete my cruise and go, wow, there is no fail. Like it, it usually doesn't happen. And it's not that I'm looking for it. It's not that I'm trying to find it. It just finds me. And it's not just me. Like I, I watch infuriated customers. I, I watch them going through. I, I actually will help them. Sometimes I, I'm of more help than the employees are because I, I know how to solve some of these things. I'm talking about in both places. Uh, I, I watch people going crazy dealing with the employees in these places. So Caesars and DraftKings, it's appropriate that they're together because they both do a lot of stupid things. And yet they're both leaders in their own industries. They've both done some innovative things over the years. They're both very large. So I have to say they're compatible. Definitely they are compatible. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Now, what about for the average consumer? Is this good or bad? That's something I always like to ask on this show when I talk about some kind of gambling news. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, how's this going to affect us? I don't think it'll matter that much. It does decrease the competition somewhat, but there will still be competition. They're not the only game in town. They, they won't be the only game in town in most places. So I think there will still be enough competition to where it won't be a monopoly. 
And on the bright side, it will take away some of the hassle one will have in betting on sports. So think about this. You you get a DraftKings account. And and I'm not sure about this. I haven't gone through the process. And in fact, they're, they're just getting this going. So I can't say this for certain. But I think what's going to happen is you get a DraftKings account, or if you already have one, and you get it uh, verified, validated, etc. I believe then if you're in whatever state they're licensed to be in for sports betting, you can just bet on sports. You don't have to do anything further. So if, if you go to one of these states, let's say you haven't been there before, you haven't been there in a long time, and now they have legalized sports betting, instead of having to go sign up for one of these mobile accounts, which is a pain in the butt, especially if you're only going to be in that state you know, just once in a while, or you don't know when you'll be back there, it's actually nice to just be able to open your DraftKings and just play, just bet. No sign-up process required. So that could be an advantage for the consumer, an advantage of convenience. I think that's the way it's going to work. I can't tell you for sure. But I think that's the goal here. I think that you just get a DraftKings account, and then wherever they have a presence through Caesars, you can just bet when you're physically standing in those states. This is a good time, by the way, to tell you currently where legalized sports betting stands. I know I get some requests on this show to give these updates every so often, so I will right now. Full legalized sports betting exists in Nevada, New Mexico, Mississippi, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Rhode Island. That's seven states right now. There are eight states. Seven new ones. New York and Arkansas are coming soon. They, they already passed a bill. It's just not ready yet. Everything else is going to have to wait. I'm not saying it's never going to come, but the other ones aren't uh, close to it. There's a lot of states with bills introduced but not passed. The only states in the entire nation with no action whatsoever for legalizing sports betting are Alaska, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Nebraska, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and Vermont. Amazingly, Hawaii actually has a bill introduced, which is shocking to me because Hawaii is one of the two very, very anti-gambling states in the nation, the other one being Utah. Utah is pretty self-explanatory because of the Mormon dominance there. But Hawaii, I never understood. That's a pretty liberal state. I've never understood why Hawaii is super anti-gambling, but they are. There's, there's no form of gambling whatsoever in Hawaii. But they actually have a bill that's been introduced. Uh, Florida, I'm surprised it hasn't been introduced because they have plenty of casinos there. Same with North Carolina. So just because there's no bill introduced yet doesn't mean it won't eventually come. But most of the nation either has sports betting or has a bill introduced or a bill passed. Uh, the ones that are 
Actually, I already said this. The ones that are next would be uh, the two that have already passed a bill, which are uh, Arkansas and New York. That's where it stands at the moment. Where does Caesars have casinos? You may wonder, where do they exist? Where do they have their existing licenses? They have Arizona, California, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, Nevada, of course, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. I know that DraftKings really wants to get in on the Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa markets. And they really had no path to get in there. So that's, even though none of these three states currently have legalized sports betting, it's, it's, there are bills on the way to get it done. So if we look in the future, you know, forget right now, forget a year from now, but if you look in the future, even just a few years away, if most of the nation has legalized sports betting, and you can just go on a single DraftKings account and access it. And by the way, I don't think this is an exclusive agreement. I, I do wonder if, if Caesar doesn't have a presence in certain other states. Uh, DraftKings, they probably can have partnerships with other companies that have casinos there. I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I think they probably can. But I assume that would be the goal, just to have one platform that you can use to bet wherever you are. Then it's almost like a national sports betting site, even though it's really state by state. There will be some states that will never have it. I'm sure Utah will never have it. Wyoming probably won't ever have it. But for the most part, I, I, I think if we look five years down the road, most of the nation will have legalized sports betting. Caesars also has some other important partnerships involving sports betting that you should know about. They have deals with the NFL and Turner Broadcasting. Of these two deals they already have, the NFL is the biggest one because Caesars was given access to the NFL fan database. What is the NFL fan database? That's a database that the NFL keeps of every fan they know of. How do they get this information? Whenever you order merchandise, when you sign up for websites, newsletters, whatever it is. When you, you go to a game, they get that information and they keep it. So they, the NFL, would you believe, has a list of 180 million fans. Now, I have to imagine that these are not all Americans. There's probably uh, some people who are foreign that are in that database. Otherwise, it, that would be a very large number. Because if you think about it, that's more than half the U.S. population. And I don't think more than half the population has signed up or done something with the NFL at some point where they'd have their info. But whatever it is, they have 180 million 
people in their database. And Caesars now has access to it all. As part of this agreement. And Caesars can use this to market. And now DraftKings can use this to market. I assume Caesars will give DraftKings access to it. Maybe Caesars will just do the marketing directly and not give DraftKings access. I don't know if they... I don't know if the partnerships cross each other. I don't know if because Caesars has a partnership with the NFL, if DraftKings now also has a partnership through Caesars. But even if not, I mean, they, they technically don't. But, but even if not, even if they, they're, they're not allowed to share this with DraftKings, which is a good chance they're not, uh, at the very least, Caesars can do the marketing themselves to that segment. So that's very, very valuable. Because a lot of NFL fans also like sports betting. I heard, I never verified if this was true, but I heard that the reason Monday Night Football came to be is because people who bet on the Sunday NFL games wanted a chance to get their money back after they lost. So they wanted one more day after. Since then, we, we have other nights that NFL football takes place. There's Thursday Night Football. There's a, it, it's no longer just Sunday and Monday like it was for so long. But I, I heard that's why Monday Night Football was invented. That may be just a rumor. That's what I heard. So a lot of people who watch the NFL also like betting on the NFL. So that, that's a valuable database to have access to. So Caesars is really positioning themselves to try to make a lot of money on this legalized sports betting thing. They're getting all ready. And I have to say, these are good partnerships they're making. They've, they do a lot of dumb things, Caesars, but so far, these partnerships are smart. They're doing it right so far, at least from a marketing and access to the customer standpoint. We will see where this goes. We will see if DraftKings really does become the dominant force in sports betting. Cross-checking the list here of the eight places where sports betting is legal, places meaning states, Caesars has a property in, let's see, I think they have properties in five of them. Let's see. Nevada, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. No, I guess it's four of them. I guess they don't have Delaware. They don't have New Mexico. They don't have West Virginia. They don't have Delaware. And they don't have Rhode Island. They also don't have Arkansas or New York at the moment which were coming next. But you know, there's others coming, so DraftKings will definitely benefit from this. DraftKings only has access to, uh, I believe, two right now. I think they only have uh, licenses in two markets. They have New Jersey, and then... 
they also have a Mississippi. But that's it. Mark Versora, the embattled CEO of Caesars, said Caesars' agreement with DraftKings, their first multi-state partnership, brings together the established leaders in gaming, daily fantasy sports, and sports betting to provide customers more options. This alliance is the latest initiative by Caesars to capitalize on our database, generate a new revenue stream in the growth market, and raise our profile in sports in part by creating new sports-themed guest experiences at our resorts across the country. The DraftKings CEO, Jason Robbins, said partnering with such a world-class gaming organization will expedite our national rollout process and give us the opportunity to work alongside one of the largest and most established industry leaders in the world. We look forward to collaborating with Caesars Entertainment on creating the most innovative and engaging sports and entertainment products and events to our customers. It's a lot of BS. It's basically we need Caesars licenses, and Caesars says, hey, we need your customer base and your expertise. And that's, that's pretty much it. You heard much about this, Trader Ruski? No, I haven't been following it too closely. Yeah, it just it just happened this week. So we'll, we'll it see seems to make a lot of sense. It does. Good move by Caesars. Looks like that to me. Okay, now here's a bad move by Caesars. We're going to talk about something completely different. It's actually not Caesars. It's Harris, but it's a Caesars property, so I call it Caesars. This is the segment, What Would Druff Do? A new segment we're going to be doing here about what I would do in a given situation, usually having to do with uh, customer service or getting screwed in some way. This was posted on my Vegas Casino Talk forum. If you haven't seen that forum, go to VegasCasinoTalk.com and you will see it. Here is a post by someone who made a gimmick account named FCET, standing for Fuck CET, meaning Fuck Caesars. They said they're a regular poster on the forum. I haven't even checked who it is yet. But for whatever reason, they wanted to hide their identity, which when you'll hear this, you won't really understand why. But nevertheless, they want to hide their identity. And they posted the following. A couple of months ago, I'm staying at at Harris, Las Vegas. I enter the bathroom to shower. The remodeled rooms have heavy sliding glass doors. Now, he's talking about the renovated rooms at Harris. Between the bathroom and the regular hotel room, there is a heavy door which slides that uh, you can slide open and closed. It's a heavy, thick glass door. I slide the door open in normal fashion. I wasn't upset or drunk or anything. So uh, what do you think happens next, Trader Risky? I have a feeling it came off the hinges and the glass. Did you say there was glass on it? It is a thick glass door. Oh, Lord. And and he's sliding it. I'd say it tipped over and broke. That's... You're close. It it. Uh, so let me read the rest of it of, of <laughs> the story. It's it's kind of weird. I don't even know what my first reaction would be if this happened. But he says, uh, "I slide the door open in normal fashion. I wasn't upset or drunk or anything, and it hits the bumpers, and it explodes into tiny pieces." 
So that's a weird thing. This is when he meets the bumper. He's talking about the end of where the door where it slides. They probably have bumpers so the door doesn't just fly off the, the the track. But for some reason, when it hit the bumpers, which I think means like a stopper, it just shattered into tiny pieces, which is weird. This is supposed to be a, th- a thick glass that doesn't break easily. I mean, yeah, if you took a hammer to it or threw a chair into it, it would break. But just, just opening it aggressively shouldn't just make it shatter. So it must have been, been faulty in some way. It must have been a faulty door. Unless the guy's not yeah, telling you. Sometimes those can get air bubbles in them. Yeah. I, I think with that thick glass, and especially if it breaks into thousands of pieces... Yeah, that's what I think. I, I yeah, think it was so a, a faulty door. And remember, they, they have thousands of them there. So, uh, of course, uh, there, there might be a few that are faulty. And I, I have to imagine this isn't the first time it happened. So he goes on to write, I'm not severely injured, but I have some fairly deep cuts on my hand that was opening the door. I still have the scars. Security comes up, takes the report, bandages me, and I expect that to be it. So now you'd you'd think from this story his next question is going to be should I sue them right that that's what I would think I would think so yeah well, well no that's not his question uh, he actually was going to drop it he actually was not going to sue them he was not going to even attempt to get any medical bills paid nothing he just he just wanted it to be done he was just going to just going to take the beating to his hand and be done with it but. you like this part a few days later I check my American Express statement and there it is. $1,500 charge for the door. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the nerve? The, the door shatters. He reports it to security. It's not like he just come in and, and you know after he leaves and find the door shattered. He reported it to security. Hey, your door just, just broke. It just broke apart in a million pieces here and cut my hand all over the place. Uh, yeah, he, he made the report. He thinks he's being nice by not suing them or, or, or trying to file a claim with their insurance, and then he gets a $1,500 charge on his American Express. And they didn't call him to discuss it. They just slapped it on his credit card. He says, I call Harris, and they give me the runaround. I call my host. He's a casino host he's referring to. He says there's nothing he can do. I open a case with American Express, that is a chargeback, they side with Harris since I signed the form at, upon check-in that makes me responsible for any room damage. I called the hotel injury lawyers on the billboard. He's talking about not the Harris lawyers, but he's, he, he found some billboard around Las Vegas for injury attorneys. I didn't know there was actually a hotel injury attorney, but I guess there is. Uh, uh, I, I called the hotel injury lawyers on the billboard. Their position is that since I didn't seek medical treatment at the outset, meaning when this happened to him, I'm shit out of luck, and they don't want to deal with anything non-injury related. Is this really a thing? I mean, if I turn on the t- how far how far is how far was that? After? I mean, that was a few days after, right? No, no. He, t- he actually when he I don't, contacted he, the attorney. He, or was he, it much later? No, he, he well, he says a few days later it was on the statement, but I don't know about when he, he he's not clear when he called the lawyer. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, because I would think they'd be chomping at the bit for this one. Yeah, so is, is this really a thing? I mean, if I turn the TV on and it explodes and catches fire, do I now owe them a new TV? If I fall through the floor, am I on the hook for construction repairs? Obviously, if I had any idea they would sink to this level, I would have gone straight to the hospital after it happened and milked them for everything I could. So now I'm open to any and all suggestions. So he wants to know, what would Druff do? What would I do if this happened? 
Well, uh, I had something a little bit similar, except the the thing was I didn't, uh, nothing got destroyed. Well, I'll tell you two things that happened to me that that were similar, but not exactly like this in that uh, there were kind of two separate incidents. One was I had something damaged of mine at a Caesar's property, and, and another one, uh, I was injured at a Caesar's property. Uh, in 2009, you know that when I told you guys about that Joy Miller story? No, I'm not, I'm not going to rehash that again. Don't worry. Don't turn, don't turn off the show. I promise I'm not going to rehash the Joy Miller story. But that same final table that I broadcast in 2009 on ESPN 360, during a break, I was in the bathroom. I was on my way out of the bathroom, and a cleaner... One of the janitors there, uh, he opened the door too quickly, and is it was as I was reaching for the door, and he opened it really quickly and aggressively, and it slammed into my hand and made a big, big, big deep cut, one that just bled and bled and bled. It probably bled more than any cut I've had in my life, and I was doing a lot of the broadcast with it profusely bleeding and me holding pressure on it. But I wanted to continue the broadcast so badly I didn't want to stop. I was really enjoying it. Um, so when this happened, I went to security and I asked, yeah, I want some bandages and that's it. They were really pressing me to fill out a report. And I said, no, why? Cause I didn't want to get the guy in trouble. It was a freak accident. Yes. He opened the door too aggressively, but if I made a report, there's a good chance he would have been fired. And, and this really was an accident. It was a, fr- a freak thing. I didn't want anyone in trouble for it. Nor did I even feel right about trying to go after, Caesars. This is at the Rio. I didn't want to try to go after them or their insurance for this. I, I just didn't feel like it was anyone's fault. I didn't feel like anyone owed me money for this. It's just one of the unfortunate things that happens. So I kept insisting, just give me the bandages and the ointment. Just give me that. And that's it. I, I, I do not want to file any report or get anyone in trouble. And that's what I did. The other thing that happened, I think it was the same year, actually, uh, a little bit later. A storm blew into Vegas, and I had my car parked at the Rio and uh, in, in their lot. And uh, I, I won't say exactly where I was, except I was in a lot where I, I technically wasn't authorized to be. Okay, I'll say that I was in a lot I technically was not authorized to be parking in. I didn't have to do anything to get in there. I think I didn't have to break through any barrier or anything. But I, I went somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be. And they, a storm blew in, and the storm blew construction equipment in that lot, which was a valid lot. It wasn't when I say I wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't a closed lot. It was an open lot. I just didn't. I wasn't authorized to park there. And it uh, blew construction equipment that they didn't tie down into my car and damaged my car. Now, Trader Ruski, do you think since I wasn't authorized to be there, do you think that they were legally liable to pay for the damage to my car? I would, I mean, unless you like drove through any barriers that they had set up, then I would think they should be responsible. Yes, in fact, they, they would be. And in fact, I think even if I did drive through a barrier, I think they would have been. But definitely in this case, they were responsible that they still have a duty to, uh, to keep things safe because it was a valid parking lot. I wasn't parked somewhere that nobody was supposed to park. I was just parked where I wasn't supposed to be the one who was there. But uh, it was a parking lot that was open to be parked in. 
It just happened to be my car that got damaged by the equipment, and they were negligent in not tying down the equipment. In fact, the funny thing was there was a rope to tie it down, which they chose not to use. So the rope actually blew into my car, too. And it was clear it was never tying. Nothing was tied down. Uh, so they they gave it to their insurance, and the insurance ended up giving me $750, which is the max that they'll ever give to anyone, which I kind of figured out on my own. And fortunately, the damage to my car was right around that. So that covered it, and that was that. And the matter was finished. I, again, wasn't looking to profit from it. I just wanted... I, I did feel this was their fault. They should have tied down the equipment. They even had a rope there to tie it down in case this happens. And Vegas gets windy all the time. So that's why they had that rope there, and no one bothered to tie it down, and it blew into my car. So I did not feel guilty collecting it. At first, they tried to say it was an act of God. It's fine. They never raised the issue about the lot I was in. I was sure they were going to bring that up and say, oh, you weren't supposed to be here. No, they... Nobody was interested in discussing that. They were trying to say it's an act of God. I said, no, an act of God is if it, if it blows some debris from outside the property into my car. Then it's not your fault. If you don't tie down your own equipment, that you actually had a rope there to tie down specifically for this, and it damages my car, then it's your fault. So, fortunately, it wasn't a lot of damage. It was 750 bucks, and they paid it. And that was that. I never had to go to court or anything. Just the, It was actually their insurance that paid it. Uh, that was my one and only claim ever of any kind against Caesars. And it was, again, it was against their insurance. And I wasn't looking to profit. I, I just wanted my car repaired, which I felt was fair. So, uh, But I've never had a situation, and I, I'll tell you guys why I'm telling this story. I'm not just trying to hijack this from my own experiences. Uh, I'll, I'll explain what I would have done in this case, where there is both an injury and the destruction of property, which in this case was Caesar's property as opposed to this person's property. In my case, the, the car was mine that got uh, damaged. So the first thing I would have done, and I urge everybody in this spot to do the same if you're ever in a spot where something breaks at a hotel that isn't obvious where it's their fault. Like, like, like for example, if, if a TV just won't turn on, but there's no physical damage to it, they're never going to blame you. Because what, what do they think? You, you screw open the TV and break it? Like that. Obviously, things like that, you don't have to do anything further. But if there's ever any physical damage to anything, you need for them to acknowledge that you're not responsible, that it was something that was unavoidable and that it was not your fault. And you need to and preferably get it in writing, but if you don't, at least get somebody that you've spoken to that's high enough up to make this decision, someone in management, that they agree that you're not going to be charged for it. And uh, like ask for an email or something telling you that uh, they're not charging you. This, and this is a fluke thing. I don't. I can't think of any time I've ever been in a hotel and something just broke like that where it could be something that could be blamed on me. I see what happened here. Caesars wasn't trying to be evil or steal from this guy. This is what happened, is that they... Remember, this is a large hotel, Harris. So a small percentage of guests are rowdy, drunk, high on drugs, whatever, angry, and they they break things. People trash hotel rooms. So they have a policy in place that when somebody trashes a hotel room, that they charge them for it. And that's very standard, and it's fair. The problem is when it's something like this, and they come up and find a door shattered, the first thought is, okay, uh, this, this guy probably just broke it. Maybe he was pissed he lost money, maybe he was drunk. The, the guy would just, he just broke the door. So we're going to charge him. 
if this was the case where he just broke it on his own, then yes, charge him. I agree. But where they made the mistake here, and I think it was more incompetent than anything else, is that they did not bother to cross-reference the security report. They should have checked security to see if security came to the room, either because he called them about the incident or because security may have been called over the noise of things breaking in there. You would think the first thing they would go see is, okay, was there a security incident? And if they checked, they would have seen, yes, there's a security incident. And then what they should have done is asked security, they should have read the report and also asked security, do you remember him being drunk? Do you remember him being belligerent? Do you remember anything about him that would have made it appear that he just did this on his own? And if the answer was no, then they need to just eat it and write it off as the cost of doing business. That was probably the door that was faulty, even if he opened it a little bit aggressively. Like, let's say he just walked into the bathroom and just kind of throws the door open in, in kind of a little bit too hard. Should he be responsible? No. You shouldn't have to de- delicately handle doors in hotel rooms. Now, it shouldn't have to handle unreasonable force. If if you're trying to open it so hard that it could fly off the tracks and it breaks, then it's your fault. But if you just, let's say you had to piss really badly, you sprint over to the bathroom and fling open the door and it shouldn't break. They should be made to where they do not break. There needs to be certain durability to this furniture in hotels. You'll notice most hotel furniture is not this... Uh, super delicate furniture that could easily be destroyed. You'll find that most hotel furniture, while sometimes ugly, is pretty durable. And that's because they don't want to have to replace it. That's because they know not everybody's gentle. So I think that these doors, some small percentage of these doors were faulty and can break easily. I I believe the guy's story. I believe he just opened it and the thing just shattered. And he called security immediately. And if there was any question, what security should have done is reported to the front desk. This should have been hashed out then. They should have figured this out then. If they they were thinking they were going to charge him, they should have had someone come up or have security do it and and interview the guy, note his state of mind, his his, uh, notes, his mood, get a full story from him. And then determine, did the guy do it on purpose, or is this just some problem with the door? And I I think if they logically looked at this, they would have seen it was probably a problem with the door. You can't know for sure. Maybe the guy just was was really, really rough on it because he was angry about something and then acted totally calm after that, especially if he he wasn't drunk. It's pretty easy to feign being reasonable, but this is where they just have to eat it. Now, if the whole room was trashed, then it's obvious it wasn't just this. But if only the door is broken, they have to give him the benefit of the doubt. They can't just bill him 1500 and guess that it was his fault without further evidence saying so. But I think that they didn't put this much thought into it. I think, I'm sure I am putting much more thought into this right now than they ever did. This was just to them a very standard situation where they find a door is broken and shattered and they bill it as damage to the room, assuming the guest damaged it on purpose or due to being drunk or angry. So let's go over again what what he should have done. So he should have gotten someone in management 
to acknowledge not just security. He should call the front desk. He should say, am I going to be charged for this? If so, I'd like to talk to someone right now. I'd like to fully explain what happened. I'd like for them to examine the angle in which the door broke. I want everything examined now if you're going to charge me. If you're not going to charge me, then, then please you know, give me something that will show me you're not going to charge me. Email me something right now you're not going to charge me. And again, you're not going to be doing this all the time. This is very rare. I don't, I've never had a situation like this in my life. I may never have a situation in my life like this. But if you do, if there's anything that just breaks there that looks like it's something you could have broken maybe, you need to get that clarified and he didn't do that. I'm not trying to get on the guy's back here. I'm just saying that uh, that was a mistake. Okay? But, but that, that's what happened. That was a mistake he made, so let's go forward. So once this showed up on his statement for his American Express, remember, this is a few days later, he must have been checking online and saw that they charged him. So he said they called, he called Harris and they gave him the runaround. Now this I believe. This, this is, this, I, I may believe, I believe his whole story, but I'm saying like, this, this is very believable. Because I've tried to reach Harris about things in the past and they've given me the runaround. Like, they, it is very difficult to reach the right people there about things. I've had it where I'm in the hotel and they give me the runaround and I have to go downstairs and try to directly talk to people because that's the only way I'll get the right people to talk to. So I sympathize with the guy. It's not as simple as just making a phone call and getting the right guy on the phone. But at some point, you need to take charge. You can't just let the the operator or some person at uh, guest services take charge of this because you're going to get screwed. Also, you should not call your host. Now, if you're a a big whale, if you're you're putting in a ton of action there, and this happens and you get charged, yeah, the, the host will, will take care of it. The, what the host will probably do is just eat the 1500 out of out of their budget. They will reimburse the hotel the 1500 just to keep your action. But that's only a very small percentage of players who put in so much action that the host c- could get that done. Other than that, the, the host does not care that much about the typical player where they're going to interfere in a matter like this. Why? Because the host only deals with the casino. You're just a number to the host. The host is trying to get your action and trying to make a commission off you. Now, if you've had a host for many, many years that you've become friendly with and become your personal friend, you know, and, and they really are your friend and not just jerking you off to make you think you are, but if you, if you really convince the person that's your personal friend, then, then um, maybe they'll help you. But in most cases, the typical host-customer relationship, they're not going to help you here even if you give a fair amount of action to the property. That's the wrong person to go to about this. You, go to, you can go to your host about casino-related issues to have him solve that, but, but not about hotel-related issues. Any hotel-related issue, you should not deal with a host. And when I say issue, I mean like customer service problems. The, the host, number one, they're not good at it. Number two, they don't have that much authority. Number three, they really don't care. So there's three people that this guy should go to find at Harris to deal with this. The best one to find is the general manager of the hotel. Not the acting manager, not just the manager during the day. I mean the general manager, the boss of the entire hotel. Uh, at least from the operations standpoint, the general manager. See if you can talk to him or her. If you can reach them, they're the best one to talk to. And you, you just got to be honest. Here's a case where he really did nothing wrong and he just needs to be honest. And when you're reasoning with the management, you have to be calm. You can't act pissed off or outraged or rude or belligerent. You just need to say, 
this is not fair. And especially because this guy was not trying to sue them, and he could have. You, you should make sure they understand that. Hotels deal all the time with people who try to roll them in some way. So you need to separate yourself from that. You say, I, I could have you – know, I have friends who told me I should have sued you guys. I don't, I don't do that. That's not me. That's not the type of thing I do. I didn't want to ruin my relationship with Harris. I just, I just figured I'll deal with the medical bills myself and the pain myself. And I, I, I don't want to file lawsuits over things like this. I don't believe in doing that. And, and all I want is, is you, you don't charge me either. I just, wanted, I just want it to be fair for everybody. I, I, I love to say that myself when dealing with companies. I want this to be fair. I want to be treated fairly. I want to treat you fairly, and I want you to treat me, or, me fairly. It's also good to say I'm not trying to get rich off this. I'm not trying to make money off this. That's another good line to use in this type of spot. Because you want them to understand you're not trying to roll them. But rather, you just want them to treat you fairly and not screw you. And it's, it, it helps when you can point out ways that you could have rolled them. And say, that's not me. So that's what you say to the person in management you're speaking to, preferably the general manager. Sometimes you can't reach them at a large hotel. If not the general manager, then it's Harris. He should reach either the front desk manager, not the acting one, but the actual front desk manager. Or if not that person, then the VIP check-in manager. Because if he has a host, I I assume he's probably a diamond or higher and can use the VIP check-in. So the VIP check-in manager is also in management and can help you. They may or may not have the authority to remove the $1,500 charge. If they don't, they can go to their boss who can. But just reason. And they can at least tell you, too, like who you should talk to and maybe give you a direct number or something, too. Right, right. And, and what I'll tell you about management here, too, is that when I say here, I don't mean the Harris in particular, but the higher up the person is that you talk to, usually the more reasonable and intelligent they are. Usually they have the better customer service skills. Usually they are more willing to listen. They're more willing to work with you. Not always, but usually. So the ones who are going to be most difficult are the lower-level employees that don't want to deal with it, often don't want to put the thought into this, often don't really give a crap if you're satisfied or not. They don't give a crap if it's fair or not. Because Why? Because they don't care about you. They, they, they're just doing a job for not very much money, dealing with a lot of things every day, and they're not taking a lot of pride in their work. And, and this isn't uh, this isn't an insult to these workers. I mean, I, look, I, I worked in some low end jobs when I was younger, and I felt the same way as as, as what I'm talking about. I, I didn't have a lot of pride in the place. I didn't give a crap too much about what the customers thought of the place. But but the upper management does, and they're also they got to that position often because they were good at dealing with things like this. So that's who you speak to, and they have the authority to deal with it. And, and if you speak to them human to human and just lay out your case in a calm and reasoned manner, often things will get done in your favor, especially if you're totally in the right. Now, this guy can't prove he didn't break that thing on purpose, but uh, there's a lot of ways he can make the case that it's clear that he didn't. Nothing else in the room was broken. Uh, when security came up, he was totally coherent and not drunk or anything and, or angry that the security will, you could say, read the security report. That you'll see I was uh, acting totally normally, not drunk. I was very coherent. Um, I've stayed here 50 times right. Nothing's happened That's another good one I don't know how many times he's stayed there But but it's a good chance he's been there many times Or other Caesars properties And he could point out Look look, look at all the different times I've stayed There's never been a security incident with me Why, why, would, why would this one time be when I, I just break a door and nothing else Like it doesn't make any sense And, and uh, someone who is intelligent enough to get up to upper management 
uh, usually we'll, we'll go, yeah, you know, this guy's right. I, th- I think he probably didn't do it. So that, that's, that's what you need to do. If you, if you go round and round with people who are uh, uh, in, in the lower ranks there, you're going to get nowhere. They're going to say, sorry, nothing we can do. You signed a paper. And don't, don't let the you signed a paper thing scare you. That doesn't, that doesn't always mean anything. Um, and, and you're not looking for legalities here. What you're looking here is to get uh, another human being to understand and, and uh, reverse what they did. Now, he has one other thing in his favor, and that is he was injured. Now, he, it's true he didn't go get medical help. And it's true, I, I believe this, uh, this happened a few months ago. Yeah, it was, it was a few months ago. So now at this point, he can't go to the doctor and say, hey, can you treat this hand that got cut a few months ago? They're not going to treat him in this. It, 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 it is correct. Those lawyers were correct that if you didn't get your hand treated at the time it happened, or at least very shortly after that, then you're going to have a hard time making a personal injury claim. There's, there's right, a- but he did. But he did ask for bandages. Right, right. He did. He so did. You kind of say that that's asking for it, and it's. You know, and I think, you know, those, a lot of the PI attorneys, they just want big doctor bills, so they get, you know, two or three times the medical expenses, and that's how they argue. Well, I, I've seen the pre- procedure. I once had to go through a personal injury procedure many years ago, and I actually had to go to the kind of pointless doctor visits, and I was like, I really don't need the doctor. And he said, no, no, you have to, to establish that you had this pain, you had this suffering. It's like a, they said it's a procedure you have to do. You can't just go into court and say, oh, it hurts, or oh, this is an ongoing thing. They won't believe you unless you have doctor visits, even if the doctor visits don't do anything for you. So it, it, it's crappy you have to do this, and it feels weird, but but that's kind of the accepted procedure in, in the personal injury world. So they're right that if you, if you have gotten no medical attention in, in two months or three months over this, uh, it, at that point, it's hard to establish a case over something like this, especially when there's no real visible injury to his hand other than scar- scarring at this point, which he can't even prove is from this. Uh, well, he did take pictures at the time, so maybe he can prove it was from this. But, but, but he has enough. He has pictures. He has scars from it. He made the security report immediately when this happened. And, and they don't know. See, uh, Harris doesn't know that he hasn't been seeing doctors all this time. He knows. The personal injury lawyer he called to consult with knows, but... Harris does not know this, so what he should what he should do is get these managers on the phone and say, "Look, I I wasn't going to do it. I I don't want to sue anybody. I still don't want to sue anybody. I don't believe in this sort of thing. I I just want everybody to walk away from this and and deal with what happened on their own. Not, not that I feel it was my fault at all. I I just I just didn't want to do it." And now I'm kind of regretting my decision because now you guys are trying to extract money from me, but I'm hoping this is a mistake. And, and if they end up saying no, that's when you bring out the threat of, well, I'm just letting you know, uh, I do have medical bills. I do have verifiable injuries from this. And then I am going to sue. But I really don't want to. But you don't want to sp- talk too much about suing their, or they will give you their lawyers. And then that's, it gets to be tough. He didn't even say, like, I've consulted with an attorney. I really don't want to go that route. Yeah. I'd like to just blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I've had it before where I say things like that, and the company comes back with, oh, you want to talk about an attorney? You're bringing up attorneys. You're bringing up lawsuits. Okay, well, you got to talk to our attorney now. I go, no, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. Don't hang up on me. Hang up. Hang on. Don't. don't. I'm not saying I'm suing you yet. I'm saying I don't want to sue you. I'm saying that I want this to be resolved. I'm saying that I'm willing to do it, and I will do it. But I'm saying that... I'm hoping that we can just 
be reasonable and resolve this. And and uh, and that, but at least let them know. You know, tell me. Look, you can say, look, I'll send you the pictures. And uh, you can say you have medical bills. If they want you to present them, you can stall them or whatever. You could, you can say what you want on the phone. You you can make up that BS there, because you're, it's ethical to do because you're trying to get something done which you know is the right thing. Your goal is to not be charged for the door breaking, which is not your fault. So whatever you have to do to get that accomplished, you got to do. You got to tell the little white lie you've been going to get medical attention the last few months when you haven't been. Then say it. I mean, the guy has real scars from it. He could. He really could have sued them over this. So, definitely fight hard and and, and also say, look, I, I I'll come on uh, on gambling podcasts everywhere about this. I'll uh, I'll go to local media. Please, let's just both walk away from this and pretend it didn't happen. And also offer to sign a paper. Releasing them from liability if they release you from liability. I want to, to, to again bring this back to something I had to deal with. Uh, I, I talked before once on the show about a, a parking place that uh, near the airport where they had some kind of party in my car where they leaned the seat all the way back and turned on hip-hop music. And I came back to find the seat leaned back like someone was lying down and the hip-hop, hip-hop music was on. I was furious. And I, I wouldn't have tune the radio to that station. It was the way my car works. You couldn't just get to that station accidentally. You'd have to go through several steps to get there. So it was clear what happened. So I basically, I demanded, I wanted just, just a refund. Nothing was damaged in my car, but I said, this is not what's supposed to happen when I park my car here. So just give me a refund for the parking, which was like 120 bucks. Well, they didn't want to do it. They wanted to put me through insurance. So I, I, I argued and argued and argued. And, and finally they said to me, okay, fine. We will give you the $120 back, but you have to sign a release of liability. So I said, fine. I wasn't going to sue them. I just, I just felt I, I deserved the money back because they did something with my car they should not have done. They should not be – an employee there shouldn't be having parties in my car. I don't know what the hell they did. They could have sex in there. could have smoked pot in there. I don't know what the hell they were doing in my car, but they were doing something in my car they shouldn't have been doing. Leaning the seat back like they're lying down and turning on hip-hop music. That's not what's supposed to be happening when my car is getting parked there. Okay? So – they did not do what they were supposed to do. I said you didn't live up to the, the your own contract for parking my car. But I don't want to sue anybody. Nothing was damaged, fortunately. So just let, let's erase the whole thing like I was never here. You give me my money back, I'm not going to sue you. They wanted me to sign a release, I signed the release. Then you know I'm not going to sue them. So since he knows he's not going to sue them, provided the 1500 goes away, offer yourself to sign the release because, again, that shows you're not trying to get rich. You're, you're not trying to roll them. They're not fearing that they're going to reverse the 1500 and then they're going to get slapped with a lawsuit. This way they know it's final. They know it's done. Once they give, they refund the 1500 after you sign the paper, and that's it. Then they know you can't sue them. So that's the, if you ever have anything like this on your side where you have something you could claim against them, bring that up too. So that's what I would have done both uh, as it happened and if I had made the same mistakes this guy did, which he didn't make many mistakes. I mean, he did He did try to address this. I'm glad he had security come up. That was big. But uh, he made a few mistakes. But I see he's trying to rectify it. And that's my advice. How much do I blame Harris from this, uh, for this? Uh, actually, not that much yet. I think, again, it was just incompetence. It was just them 
jumping to the wrong conclusion over something being broken. Because usually when something is broken in a room like that, it is the customer's fault. But they, they made the mistake by not checking the security logs. At least I assume they didn't check them. Someone didn't make the right common sense judgment call here. That's where they made the mistake. Hopefully, when he reaches the right person, they fix that. Sometimes you've got to press a bit. Remember we had uh, Eric Sonstegard on this site, on this show, who was a, uh, a guest at the Rio. When they double-checked someone into his room, a stranger who came in, found his stuff, and stole money and his iPad from him. And then the Rio realized what they did when he complained. Contact that guest. The guest only returned some of it. He returned the iPad and some of the money, but he was still out. The, the, the guy had kept 2K for himself or maybe lost it in the casino. So they wouldn't give the guy, they wouldn't give Eric back the other 2000 And I gave Eric advice of what to do. And he appeared on this show. And he got to tell them he appeared on this show. And when it was all said and done, they gave him the 2K back, which they steadfastly refused at first. But, you know, he put on the right pressure, did the right things, and uh, they decided it wasn't worth it. They just gave him the 2K back, even though they could never locate it from the other guy. So sometimes he's got to reach the right people, press, and get these things done. Anybody wants to call in 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. What is this? What am I hearing? It sounds like a sonar here. A poor network connection. <laughs> I thought maybe that's a call. That, you're back, Trader Risky. You there? Yeah, no, I don't think I ever left. Well, it's, it said a poor oh, network great. connection. It was like, boo, 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 boo. It sounded like sonar. It sounded like I'm yeah, I heard somewhere. that. Yeah, weird. I didn't hear I've never seen that before. That was weird. I thought I lost you. I thought you were gone. Let's take a look at the chat room. Uh... Disposition said in the chat, Druff padlocked his radio against that hip-hop. They, they ran a prose operation, Seinfeld style, and he used condoms on the floor. No, I couldn't find any evidence they had sex there, but they could have. I was gone for like over a week, so it's possible all evidence was removed and any smells from that were gone by then. Uh, <laughs> forum Wars in reference to this story we just had about the shower door, he said uh, Harris needs to be more transparent regarding their shower doors. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when they do these uh, renovations, a lot of times they just think about what looks cool and not what is functionally proper for a hotel. It's also in Harris that they have these missing shower doors. At first when I read the story, I'm like, wait a minute, how do you break the shower door? There is no shower door. But no, this is actually the door between the bathroom and, and the hotel room. But I thought, what a dumb decision that is to have no shower door. Of course, they, at Harris, they were actually holding a shower curtain just for me. If I come to Harris, I just have to tell them, Hey, here I am. Get me my shower curtain. I, I, I didn't believe them when they told me they're going to hold it just for me after they went out and bought it just for me. And I didn't ask them to buy me a shower curtain. I was only I only went through the whole thing because they told me there was one, and then there wasn't when I got there. And then the way they resolved the whole thing was by buying one. You guys probably remember that whole story last year. But 
uh, I, I was skeptical that I'd come back months later and they'd actually like have the Todd Wattella shower curtain there, but they did. I, I called up and said, do you have it? They said, we'll look into it. I get there, and yes, that exact shower curtain is hanging in my room. I was impressed. All right. Let's move on here to our next topic. It's about Jeff Boski. And th- this is an interesting one. This is an interesting one. As soon as I heard about this, I said, this is a good radio topic. I, I-, I like the topics that kind of make you think about who's right, who's wrong. And again, this involves Caesars. And you'll hear whose side I'm on with this one. So I'm going to play you. Uh, Trader Ruski, I know you won't be able to hear, but maybe you can watch on your own. But I'm going to play you Jeff Boski's blog, uh, V-Log, not... not uh, blog, and not vlog. I'm not going to say vlog. Jeff Boski's vlog called Banned from All Harris Properties. Here we go. Blackballed. 86th. Banned. He's showing like pictures of drinks here. I don't know why. He's showing himself bowling. It's such a weird intro here. So he has the, he has the little intro saying blackballed eighty six banned and then and then he plays this weird intro that has nothing to do with that showing drinks just sitting by themselves and then him bowling for some reason and of course he bowls a strike of, of Yahtzee co- yeah, of, of course he bowls a strike why is why when someone shows themselves bowling it's always a strike I I I think it's more interesting to see someone you know, get a seven ten split not not pick one up but actually. Get one, or <laughs> there's the seven ten split, and it's almost impossible to pick up the spare, or or, or better yet, just gutter ball it. I want to see. I don't want to see a strike. Yeah, I know everybody can bowl a strike. I can bowl a strike sometimes. Even my son Benjamin bowls a strike on occasion. Anyway, we see him bowling a strike for some reason. Adam Boski. Now we see his dog for some reason. This is so weird. Dogs are eating treats from his hand. Here Let's go. go somewhere different. Let's play a $250 World Series of Poker circuit event. That's right. We're back at the Rio field. It should be soft. There's re-entries. There's two flights, day two tomorrow. Let's bag and tag and get the job done. Win our first circuit ring. And I am not in the Rio $250 circuit event. They would not let me register. I had my player's card. I had my money. I had my ID. But my account was flagged. You're not going to believe what happened. I cashed for $4,900 or something in the tag team event last year. I got 12th place with Steve. Epic vlog. Check it out. Right there. But I'm out. $1,000 tag team tournament. Hell of a run, but just wasn't meant to be. And it turns out, at the end of the year, they paid me for the event again. I got I double cashed the tag team event. My partner got paid. I got paid. Then I got paid again according to their records. So they say I cannot register for this event, and I owe them just under $5,000. Okay, let's stop here. So this is kind of weird. This is the first time I've ever heard of this happening, too. 
that a guy plays a World Series of Poker event. And this is regular World Series of Poker, not circuit. He, he just tried to play the circuit and got denied. They wouldn't let him register because he owes the money. But the guy played the World Series of Poker in 2018, cashed in the tag team event in 12th place for almost $5,000. And then he somehow got paid twice. I've never heard of this before. I didn't think it was even possible. I thought it was all computerized to where the computer has down whether you got paid or not. So I, I, if, if this has happened, I've never heard of it before. And they discovered it, and they want the money back, which is reasonable if they overpaid you, and they've, and they can prove it, and they've discovered it. Then of course you owe them the money back. And so the approach they took is that he's banned from Caesar's properties until he pays it back. The World Series of Poker made an error, an error in my favor, apparently. And my options are pay them $4,900 and register the $250 tournament. Or I can choose to not pay $4,900 and be banned from all Harrah's properties. Blackballed, 86th, banned, but almost $5,000 richer, allegedly. They keep saying allegedly. It's very clear as you watch this vlog that this really happened. If it didn't happen, he'd say it didn't happen. If, it, if he really only got paid once, he'd say, they're full of crap, I got paid once, I can prove I only got paid once. If they look, they'll see I, they only paid me once. I'd like to see myself on camera getting paid twice. He doesn't say that. He, he pretty much admits to it without admitting to it. I don't have any knowledge of this uh, double payment. It's always a long summer, a lot of caches. See, that's not true. He says it's a long summer, a lot of caches. And this is very important. What is a lot of caches? So this guy supposedly played a lot of events. I don't know how many he played, but he claims it's a long summer, a lot of caches. So what did he cash? Like like eight times, nine times, uh, ten times? No. He cashed three times. <laughs> now, maybe, maybe he only played six events, in which case that's very good. But whatever he played, he cashed three times. So he definitely is not getting this lost in a sea of caches. If you cash three times, it's pretty easy to know whether they paid you or not. A lot of uh, stuff going on at the Rio and other properties, so they gave me the paperwork, which is right here. Okay, so what he's showing now, you can't see it obviously on the radio, but what he's showing is... A screenshot, and this is actually pretty interesting, and I, and I actually took a screenshot of the screenshot from his video and posted it on Poker Fraud Alert. You can go to the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum and see both this video and the screenshot from this portion of the video that shows the screenshot from the Rio's system. This, this is what it says, and it, he, it's quickly flashed there. You don't have time to read it all unless you pause it, but fortunately I just screenshotted this so you can... Take as long as you want to read it. Uh, it says customer owes forty nine thirty seven and fifty cents for being paid twice. Then something's blocked by the printing on YouTube, so I can't see this part. In, in I think it says in tag. Yeah, it says in tag team event seven one eighteen means July first two thousand eighteen, and on, and again on seven fourteen eighteen, and then it's signed seven sixteen eighteen J Douglas. So someone named J Douglas. Found on July 16, 2018, that Jeff Boski was paid twice 
this 49-37 for the tag team. First he got paid on July 1st, and then he got paid again on July 14th. Then there's also the logs of the payments he's received. And uh, I'm not going to bother reading the ones for his other two caches, but uh, here it says uh, 7118, event 55, place 12, paid customer manually. I don't know what manually means. It, paid, it probably just means they gave him cash. Uh, 4937.50 cash, it says. WSOP slash LM. I assume LM is probably the initials of the cashier who gave it to him. Then it also says above it, uh, 714.18. Manual payout and manuals misspelled as M A N U E L. It's like a Manuel payout. <laughs> so appara- apparently he got paid out by a Mexican dude named Manuel. Hey, it's a manual payout, man, for the forty-nine thirty-seven fifty cash. I paid you out, SA. No, it's, it, they tried to write manual, Manu- manual or Manuel payout forty-nine thirty-seven fifty cash for event fifty-five place twelve KL slash WSOP. So someone named KL. Uh, did the Manuel payout without bothering to look that it was paid out 13 days earlier. This is pretty laughable because what it probably means is that they have to manually look at the system to see if someone has been paid, which is crazy. I always was I was sure that the system keeps track of this. I guess I gave them too much credit. I was sure the system keeps track of this. They enter it in, and it spits out what the person's owed. And if they've already been paid, it says that uh, the total amount that they are owed is zero point zero. That's what it should have done. But somehow they all they have to do is they have to go through the screen manually. And see if they can find it. And apparently the person missed it, this KL at the WSOP, and not only did they pay him twice, they, they misspelled manual. This KL person probably isn't too bright. I think KL should be out of a job. That would be my decision if I were in charge there. But how did this happen? How was he paid twice? Well, here is his explanation, which he doesn't give in the video. You have to look at the comments of the video. When you cash a WSOP event, a dealer walks you over to another employee that has a computer that they take your ID and input what what tournament you cashed in and what place you got. They also give you a payout card that you keep as a souvenir or give to the person at the payout cage. You don't need possession of your payout card to get paid since they already have all your info. You just need a passport or driver's license. This part's all true. I've cashed a lot of times in the World Series, and this is all true. This is exactly what happens. They they hand you a payout card that says what place you got in which event, and you go hand it to them. I actually thought you needed the card, but uh, um, it is true. You don't have to surrender it. You can actually keep it afterwards. I never even thought, like, what if you return with this card? But I always thought it was computerized because what happens is you take the payout card first to a desk within the tournament room. They note in the system... Who you are? They take your player's club card and they, they take your player's card and your ID, put you in the system to officially note you as being in that place, and then you go to the payout room where they bring that information up and pay you. That, that's basically what happens. So, so what he's writing there is pretty much correct. Then he goes on to write: Historically, when I cash at events of the World Series, I don't get paid out right away for various reasons. There may already be a long line from all the recent min cashers, or I might just need to register another event. 
So what he's saying here is that sometimes when he cashes, he, he just goes home and comes back later to collect the money, which you can do. And I've done that before too. Not usually, but sometimes like if I don't feel like it or if I, there is a big line, I say, okay, well, no problem. I'll be here later. I'll just come, come by later when there's no line. So that's fine. But here's the part which is really doubtful. At the end of every WSOP, I go to the cage to get a printout of all my buy-ins and caches for tax purposes and to claim any unpaid caches. As far as I know, if you don't claim them, the World Series of Poker keeps them. They said I didn't get paid for my tag team cash, so I got paid cash. I didn't think it was possible for the computer system to pay me twice for the same cash. Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. Not for a second. Let me tell you why this is complete BS. Basically, he's saying, I showed up at the end of the World Series... Said, hey, do you guys owe me any money? They said, oh, yeah, we never paid you for the tag team. He's like, oh, okay, I, I guess you didn't. Well, first of all, there's no way you forget this. This was his last of the three caches he got, and it was his biggest one. Still not a big cash. It was only a bit short of 5000 But that was his biggest of the three, and it was the last one he got. So how could he have forgotten that he went to collect $5,000 13 days earlier when it was the, th- the third of his three caches this summer? The answer was he didn't forget. So then why was he there? Why was he really there on July 14th? Because he, he was there on July 14th. So why did he go there? He claims it was to get a printout of his buy-ins and caches for tax purposes and to claim any unpaid caches. Well, I, I think this is what he did. And, and only he knows this. But this is what I think he did. I, I think he was uh, staring at that payout card they let him keep. And he thought, hmm, what? What would happen if I brought this back here and tried to cash out again? But what if I did it in a way to where it didn't look like I was trying to roll them? What what if I just kind of show up with this and go, well, I don't think you paid me, but you know, can you check? And then they check, and then someone made a mistake and paid him twice. So he, he took a shot. It was like a free roll. That's what I think happened. I think he went there on July 14th when he was done playing everything to see if they'll be dumb enough to pay him again for, for this third and largest cash. Also, note that the event was on June 27th. It started. He bro- he busted out on June 28th. And then he went to collect the money the first time on July 1st. The reason that's significant is that this person who paid him the second time probably just looked during the duration of the event, July 27th, 28th, 29th, to see if he got paid. They probably didn't bother to look in July. So they probably just looked in June, saw he didn't get paid, and didn't bother to look in July, which was stupid, of course, and then manually paid him. But definitely he tried to do this. I don't believe he's just showing up there to ask, oh, yeah, uh, can you like give me a printout of my buy-ins and caches? And, oh, yeah, did you pay me for everything? I totally don't remember of my three caches if, if you paid me for all three, since three is such a large number. But But hold on. Maybe you don't totally believe this as strongly as I do. I'm sure you think this is possible, what I'm explaining, but maybe you're giving the guy the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're more trusting than I am. Maybe you're less cynical than I am. Maybe you're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really did just show up. I mean, I'm sure you believe that he knew he was being double paid, but but maybe he wasn't trying to be. Maybe he was just showing up there to ask him this question. Is, uh, you know, hey, is uh, can you give me a list of everything? Did you pay me for everything? And they said yes and paid him, and he just took it. So... How do you know that this story really is BS? Well, listen to the remainder, or part of the remainder, of his vlog. 
is still him showing that screen. Furthermore, they claim the error was their fault, but it was because I still had the payout card for my 12th place finish in the tag team event. And the cashier didn't realize that they don't collect the payout cards. And due to this payout card mishap, I was able to get paid twice. Going forward, the World Series of Poker will no longer issue payout cards. It's all automatic, digital, in the computer system, so people can't present the player card twice and get paid twice. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Where in his story that he wrote on in the comments section of this video, where, where did he mention the payout card? He didn't at all. His story was he just showed up and said, hey, can you give me a, a list of, uh, of my buy-ins and cashes? And, oh, did you pay me everything? Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, uh, can you pay me for the one you didn't pay me? That, that's what he's claiming, right? That, that was in his own words that he wrote. He wrote nothing about a payout card. Now, all of a sudden here, there is a payout card involved. And he claims that they're changing the rule at the World Series of Poker. They're actually doing away with these payout cards that they've given away since it's been at the Rio. All because of him. And that the reason he got paid twice is because the payout card was involved. Now, wait a minute. If he just went and asked for a printout and then said, hey, what haven't I been paid for? What would the payout card have to do with this? It wouldn't. So it just completely contradicts his entire story he's telling on the on the vlog. He, what he's saying in the vlog versus what he wrote completely contradict one another, which means the guy's completely full of crap. It means he was trying to roll them. It means he, he was staring at that damn payout card and said, hmm, now what if I went back and did this again? And he tried it. I talked to Tyler Papel, uh, very high up at the World Series of Poker, for almost 20 minutes discussing all this. And due to my case in particular, they're calling it the Boski Rule. So I'm faced with a bit of a conundrum. But before we get to his conundrum, he, he's so proud of that, the Boski Rule. I, I talked to Tyler Papel, and he's high at the World Series of Poker, and they made the Boski Rule. Can you believe this, guys? There's a rule named after me. <laughs> <laughs> the rule named after me, the Boski rule. First of all, his name not even Boski. This guy's real name is uh, Jeff Sluzinski. Not Boski. Jeff Sluzinski. That doesn't even sound like Boski. I guess it's got ski at the end. But The Boski rule, he claims, is the new rule that they don't give those payout cards. So clearly, he went back with that payout card and said something to them that convinced them to pay him twice. That's what happened. Not that he asked for a printout and that, hey, you guys owe me any money? Oh, you do? What do you know? No, that's not what happened. This whole thing's a lie. He tried to roll them. Now, he claims it's Tyler Papel, who, uh, Pipel, P-A-P-A-L, P-I-P-A-L. I don't know who that person is, but they're listed as like operations manager, World Series of Poker. It's interesting. I haven't heard of them. I, I've I, The three I've heard of being at the top of the World Series are Ty Stewart, Jack Effel and Seth Polanski. I don't know if this Tyler Pipple, but apparently he's there. But he's claiming Tyler Pipple took responsibility, not personally, but that he, the World Series took responsibility through Tyler Pipple, that it was their mistake and that they're just changing the way they're going to do it in the future. I would think that Jeff would be subject to a ban for this, for just even attempting this. I would think they'd figure this out, and even if they fell for his ruse here, that given that he clearly went there to attempt to cash out twice and was successful, that they should just ban him entirely. That, that's actually what I would do. If I were this Tyler guy, I would say, you're out of here. You're not coming back. You tried to roll us. You did. So not only do you owe us the money, but you're banned for life. 
But apparently he didn't. Apparently he was very nice about it, too nice about it. And they took credit for it. How much EV do I have expected at all Rio properties in the World Series of Poker? Is it worth at least $5,000 over the next X years? Will being banned from these properties affect my enjoyment of the Las Vegas lifestyle? Is there a moral or ethical issue about them double paying me and me keeping the almost $5,000 extra, allegedly? I'm going to have to figure it out right now. Do I drive home and be banned from all Rio properties? Or do I go to the bank, pick up five grand, and uh, hand it over to the fine people at the Rio and World Series of Poker? There's a fork in the road in most decisions in life, and I'm going to ask a couple buddies and see what they think, and then we're going to make a decision. Stay tuned. Okay, now what's weird here at this point, it's showing him like looking sad in front of Bank of America. Is it worth paying $4,937.50 to not be banned from all Harris properties and be able to play poker events at Harris properties for the rest of my life? I'm a professional poker player that lives in Las Vegas. Is the equity loss worth it? Let me know in the chat. What would you do in my situation? So what's dumb here is instead of Continuing on this theme, where he's basically asking, I got 5000 extra, should I just keep it and play elsewhere and give up on Caesar's properties forever, or is it worth $5,000 to give it back to them to be able to continue to play there? Well, instead of providing something more dramatic, the video goes on for five more full minutes, and it immediately shows him playing the circuit event. So you got your answer right there. Is it just jumps to him playing a circuit event, and then you've got the answer. So if he's playing it, obviously he paid it. So that's what happened. He paid it. And I'm not going to play this part, but he claims that uh, Tyler Pivel actually gave him a $100 voucher to the Voodoo Steakhouse in Rio over this whole thing. And so not only did they unban him for giving the money back, but they actually gave him a food comp, which is unbelievable. It's like, you know, thanks for giving back the money you stole from us. Here's a food comp out of, you know, in appreciation. Unbelievable. Can you imagine the guy, he purposely rolls them, he purposely cashes out twice, and I don't just mean he received a cash out twice, I mean, it really looks like he purposely went there to try to cash out twice and was successful. I can't, I can't say for sure, but it looks like it. It strongly looks like it. His story has too many holes and contradictions. It wouldn't make sense any other way. But that he gets caught... And all they do is ask for the money back and then give him a food comp for giving it? Crazy. Crazy. Now, why? Why would they do that? Why Why has the Rio been so nice to him? Well, I have an idea. Jeff Boski, a.k.a. Jeff Slazinski, is pretty popular as far as vlogs go. He, he has a pretty big following. Not a huge following, but pretty big. Um, to show you his oh, start of the video again accidentally. This video, which was released on February 21st, now a week ago, has 22,309 views and 627 comments. This guy got a pretty big following. 
he has a bigger audience than this show does, for example. We don't, we don't have 22,000 listeners to this show. Now, yeah, some of those views are duplicates, but uh, he has more exposure than I do, for example. He's not a, a superstar in poker, but he's got a big enough following. And I will tell you about the World Series of Poker, that they are surprisingly sensitive to being criticized by people who have influence. It's important to them that people who have any kind of influence, even ones that are not super influential, don't talk trash about them. And we've seen examples of this. We've, we've even seen uh, that situation with John Mahaffey, who's a, a, a journalist in Las Vegas, that uh, he got some pressure from them just for writing some critical but probably true things about WSOP.com. They really, really don't like being criticized by anyone in poker with an audience. And that can be good and bad. It can be bad in that they can maybe want to retaliate against you for criticizing them, as what happened to John Mahaffey. Though nothing ended up happening. They just threatened some stuff to him, allegedly. But on the good side, if you're one of those people who has any kind of following, that if you are wronged in some way, they will try to make it right for you. And even when you're not wronged, in the case of Jeff Boski, who wronged them, <laughs> you can still come out of it smelling like a rose. Because they'd rather just he doesn't trash them. They weren't going to let him get away with keeping 5000 bucks that wasn't his, but uh, provided he gave it back, they were happy to let him come back and gave him a $100 food comp. And they were very nice to him the whole way. Why? Because they don't want to make a fight with him. They, they don't want him trashing them. They don't want him saying the World Series sucks, nobody go play there. They don't want him saying, look, I was going to give the money back, and they um, now they're demanding the money back, they're, they're going to ban me even if I pay them back. Then a lot of his followers would be pissed. Maybe the followers won't come play the World Series from seeing something like that. Especially if he frames it like this wasn't his fault, even though I believe it was. So here really was a case that someone deserved a ban. If he got banned, I would not be taking up his side. If he got banned, I'd say, well, that's what he gets. Now, I'm not a, a defender of Caesars. If he got away with it, I wouldn't really care. It's not my business, not my problem. Uh, would I ever attempt to do this? No. I've never even thought of attempting it. But if he got away with it, fine. But if he got banned, also fine. If he got banned, that's honestly what he deserves. He tried to steal 5K from them, was successful, and if he got caught, they, they would have a right to say, give us the money back or we're going to you know, try to file a, a complaint against you, both criminal and civil, and we're banning you anyway. They could have said that. They could have said, give us the money back or we're suing you and also you know, filing a criminal complaint. If you give us the money back, we won't do that, but either way, you're banned. They could have said that to him and it, it would have been completely justified. And yeah, he'd have his fanboys bitching about it, and yeah, he'd be framing it like it was their fault and he got screwed. But the truth is, if you try to do something like this to the casino and you get caught, you can't complain when they ban you. You can't. I, I will never take up 
the cause for someone who tried to roll a casino. And I don't mean through advantage play. Advantage play is fair game. I mean through just actually stealing. Either stealing chips, stealing money, getting double paid for something where it's clear that you're being double paid and you're and you, were, you know, finding a way to make it happen. These are all different forms of stealing. And if you do it and get caught and you get banned, then it's on you. Again, I'm not their defender. I'm not going to get on my soapbox and scream what an awful person for doing this. It's between him and Caesars. But if he gets banned, honestly, that's what he deserves. He's lucky that he has this following because if he did not have this following, it's possible that he really would be banned. But because he was Jeff Boski, popular vlogger, he is not banned. A lot of people don't really believe him, even his fans. A lot of people are questioning this in the comments. I wrote my own comment there, and he hasn't responded. It's funny, he was responding to various people, but he, was not re- he didn't respond to mine. I wrote, sorry, but your story is both absurd and contradicts what you said in your video. You bragged about the Boski rule they just instituted, which eliminates the payout cards. You claim that this elimination was due to your situation, which obviously had, no- had something to do with the payout card. However, your story above seems to indicate that you simply showed up at the end of the World Series, asked, hey, did you pay me everything you owe, and they accidentally paid you again for the tag team finish. If that were true, the payout cards would not be involved at all. Furthermore, you had just three caches in the 2018 World Series, with this being the largest and final one. There is no way you would have got forgotten what they paid you, especially over a matter of almost $5,000. If you had 13 caches, your story would be a bit more believable. Look, I realize you can't openly admit to trying to fuck Caesars out of an extra 5K since you want to remain in good standing there. That's fine. We can read between the lines. But please don't insult our intelligence by telling us such an outrageously BS explanation. And that's what bothered me the most with that stupid explanation he put it. He pinned at the top, which was kind of an addendum to his video. At least his video didn't explain it. His video just kept saying, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. But he didn't try to give a BS explanation about how it happened. But people kept asking him how it happened, so he put up this complete lie here. If you're going to put up an explanation, either tell the truth or don't put one up. So it kind of annoyed me. Again, I don't really care what he does to Caesars, but it it annoyed me. And I I also kind of dislike the favoritism where where people who are, are known in poker get out of things like this, where the average person will not. It's up to Caesars if they want to let him back, which they did, but... And then they give him a $100 food voucher, too. Maybe, maybe I should try to double cash, and if I'm successful, then just give back the money and say, okay, where's my 100 bucks? I want to eat at the Voodoo Steakhouse, too. I, I just stole from you and gave the money back. Steak, please. I want a filet mignon here. And a lobster tail. And some mashed potatoes. I want a pronto for free, because I gave back the money I stole. Outrageous. Looking at the chat room, Jay Stat, who's not a fan of Caesars, he always bashes Caesars, says, the 4,900 windfall from the World Series is well worth a banning from Caesars Entertainment. Sleezers, he calls them, will break apart per Carl Icahn. No law was broken. If Boski ignored any communication for the evil empire, better casinos outside of them. Uh, and then he also says, I trashed Caesars in 2011 on YouTube for stealing billions uh California's public pension system. 
I don't know what that's about. Uh, they, they'd make my day if they retaliated. I will say they've never retaliated against me for anything I've said on this show criticizing them, but, I, but I've noted that I've always been fair. Like, like, notice here whose side I'm on. I'm on their side for this one. In fact, I think they were way too light on him. Uh, but but I wasn't on their side for the thing with the, with the hotel room and the glass door shattering. But again, I, I admitted that probably this wasn't intentional to steal from the guy. I think they were just incompetent. So I, I try to be very fair in these situations. But I'm also not going to hold my tongue if they do things that are wrong. All right, let's uh, let's take a look here for the next topic. We will talk about another casino situation, but across the country. It does involve Caesars properties, but it involves other properties that are not Caesars properties. It involves a lot of properties in the Atlantic City area. Something that happened in the New Jersey market. And this was brought to my attention by a listener who's actually a major part of the story itself. It's actually pretty interesting. And... I haven't posted about it on Poker Fraud Alert. It is posted by somebody else on Vegas Casino Talk. But uh, if you Google Ocean Magic New Jersey, you can probably find the article. It's on njonlinegaming.com. It's a very interesting article, and, and I want to discuss it. So here's what happened. First of all, New Jersey has legalized online casinos. Not just online poker, but they're allowed to offer casino games online, which Nevada cannot do. There's a game called Ocean Magic. It's a slot machine. Ocean Magic is a machine that one can advantage play. There are ways to play slot machines when they're in certain states where it's positive expectation for the player as long as it remains in that state and as long as you have the discipline discipline to quit, even if you're down money, then you're playing a positive expectation game. Now, this can be kind of frustrating to do because you have to scour casino floors to find machines in this state, and often there are none. And then when you do find them, you have like a few spins, and if you don't hit something, then you've lost and you have to have the discipline to walk away and not attempt to get your money back once it's in back to negative expectation mode. Because slot machines, in general, are very negative expectation. Usually they have like a 9% casino hold, which is a lot. So to get them in a positive situation, it's not going to last long. And you've got to have the discipline to walk away as soon as they're not. But Ocean Magic is one that is well-known among Advantage players, so much that there are actually websites explaining Ocean Magic. This, I'm not about to give away secrets here. Now, what I'm going to explain does work. And if you find a machine in this state, then you're uh, you're actually playing with an advantage for a short time. But this is not a secret. This this is pretty much everywhere. If you want to read about it, you can actually Google just Ocean Magic machine, Ocean Magic Advantage play. You can Google things like that. Ocean Magic is one of the best-known advantage play machines. Ocean Magic is in advantage play mode when the Ocean Magic symbol is in a specific place, or even better, places on the screen. And when I say on the screen, I mean like 
when someone has already spun it and it's, the, the machine's sitting there empty and you're seeing ocean magic uh, this, on, on the display. You're seeing that uh, you know the display has a bunch of different symbols. You see the ocean magic symbol in some places on the display. Not, not just anywhere. What you want is ocean magic in the bottom left quadrant. That's what you're looking for. If it is not in the bottom left quadrant, then it still is not positive expectation. If there's multiple ones in the bottom left quadrant, that's even better. So that's that's how it works. And the, the reason is because uh, Ocean Magic, the symbol, it's also the name, name of the machine, uh, can lead to certain uh, bonuses and multipliers. They're, uh, they're, they're basically wild. So if you have them in the right position on the screen, then it's temporarily advantageous for the player. So if somebody walks away with Ocean Magic in the right spots, I'm talking about the symbol Ocean Magic, then the machine remains in that positive expectation state until they move out of that spot. See, what happens with these machines is it doesn't reset after every spin, like most slot machines do. Here, if Ocean Magic is sitting on the screen, it stays there until it moves off the screen. And what it does is it kind of bubbles up. It actually moves up uh, from the bottom to the top until it disappears. So if the, the closer they are to the bottom, the better it is, and the closer it is to the left, the better it is. What people do, what advantage players do, this isn't all that lucrative, but they... they when they're walking through a casino, if they spot an ocean magic machine, they go through each denomination. Because each denomination it runs as a separate game. So even if you don't see it on the screen at the one showing, you switch to a different denomination, it may be there. So they go through every denomination and look if ocean magic's in the right place. If it is, then they run it until it's no longer in the right place. And they go through all the denominations, see what they can find, and then quit. It's not going to make you a lot of money because it's not a high-stakes machine. So it's it's not worth scouring casinos just for this, because even if you find a few, it's not worth that much. You're, these are not high-stakes games. But it's one of these things, if you happen to be around one, you can give it a shot. And it doesn't require any skill, you just you just keep spinning. It's just a slot machine. It's just a, The only skill is, is noticing where the ocean magic symbol is. Again, I'm not giving away a, a secret play here. This is something well-known. I'm going to Google it right now. I'm going to Google it and see what comes up. I, I've seen it before, just on the open web. Ocean Magic Advantage Play. I just googled that. Yeah, r- r- right on the top. Uh, how to how to play, how to advantage play IGT's Ocean Magic on uh, AdvantageSlots.com So a- anyone can see it. So it's, uh, so this thing says here let's see um, what the advantage player wants is to find a machine with leftover bubbles on the screen that have not reached the top row, the exception of any bubbles on column five. So it's basically the same what I said, that, that, uh, that the most useful ocean magic bubbles are the ones that are at the bottom, you know, as close to the bottom as possible, and, and as close to the left as possible. This, this website's claiming you want everything but the outer right edge. You don't want the top. You don't want the very top, and you want the very right. I, I was told you actually want the nine spots most to the left and the bottom, but uh, it, it's it's fairly close either way. Doesn't matter. You get my point. 
And you can do this. The listener, you guys, you guys can do this. Just, just have the discipline to walk away when it's not like this. And be aware that most of them just will not be in the state. Most people don't walk away with these bubbles just left there like that. So why am I telling you about this? Well, the New Jersey online casinos amazingly offered Ocean Magic recently, which is shocking because this is not a secret. There, there are certain advantage plays that, people, that people find and they keep very close to the vest. They either tell no one or they tell their really close friends or close advantage play partners. But what some advantage play, what some advantage players do is for plays that have a lot of variance to them, for a lot of money, they, they don't want to risk their bankroll on it. So sometimes they'll go in together on a play to smooth out the variance, things like that. So sometimes you know, partners will share it or people who share information with each other will share it. But the very good plays, usually the players keep very close and, and don't let it out because once it gets let out, the play gets ruined very fast because it gets exploited too much and the casino catches it. But, but Ocean Magic, because this is just the way the machine operates, it's nothing that can be ruined. And th- this is really well known, and it's so well known, I'm shocked that casino managers are not aware of this, because if they were, they would not offer it online. So offering it online already presents a problem in a few ways. First of all, believe it or not, Ocean Magic was offered at very high stakes online, which were not offered in brick-and-mortar casinos. So people could spin Ocean Magic and risk one million dollars. No, that's not true, but but they could, they could play at very high stakes that were not available normally with the machine. Another thing that was crazy was that these machines would actually start off in in advantageous mode. Which is insane. <laughs> this is you didn't have to scavenge these machines anymore. It actually would start off to where you were able to take advantage of it right away. So this is a story that's less than a month old from when it started. And it was just published on NJOnlineGaming.com. And I'm gonna read it to you. And then I'll tell you who I know from this story personally. The house always wins, right? Not this time. The house was crumbling brick by brick, bubble by bubble. The game's called Ocean Magic and had long been among the most exploitable casino slots games. You just needed to know what to look for. Summed up in five words, wild bubbles are your friend. If you start out with them in certain positions on your screen, you have an opportunity to play with an edge over the house. I've been playing with Ocean Magic much since the first day I was aware of the game says Max, a professional gambler based in Las Vegas. The problem, as Max knew well, is that the stakes available at brick-and-mortar casinos are limited. And so, in turn, is the upside. I was just mentioning that. The brick-and-mortar version of the game isn't necessarily worth a deep-pocketed player's time. It was in late January that Max received a call from his friend Jay back east in New Jersey. Ocean Magic was available at legal online casinos in the Garden State, where... And whereas $500 a spin was considered an extremely high limit on the brick-and-mortar machines in Las Vegas, online in New Jersey, spins with favorable odds were available for up to $3,000. Now, this doesn't make it clear. You you could not spin Ocean Magic brick-and-mortar for $500 a spin. That just wasn't available. It wasn't even close to that. But 
they actually were allowing $300, $3,000 a spin machines online, and Ocean Magic was one of them. So it goes on to say, there was a unique exploit specific to this online version, and Jay could only do so much to take advantage of it by himself. When Jay made me aware of Ocean Magic in a playable game state for Nosebleed Stakes, I was very excited to get involved, said Max. Max wasn't the only friend who got the call. Jay says there were about ten people that played, each opened his own account at numerous sites and made four or five figure deposits and bet as big as possible. This was on January 29th, the Tuesday before the Super Bowl. Within a week, nearly every online casino in New Jersey had pulled the game, but Jay and his friends were already up almost one million dollars. Jay, that's what he has to be called for the purposes of this article, and similarly Max, is not his friend's real name, was working on Wall Street until 9-11 caused him to, to press the spin reels button on his career. He left New York for a fresh start, and he soon stumbled into what is known as advantage play. When most people picture a slots player, images pass through their minds of a blue-haired woman with a slowly diminishing bucket of quarters. Jay, now in his mid-40s, departs from that stereotype in every possible way, right down to the fact that the quarters in his bucket usually don't diminish. Advantage players look for any casino game that gives them an edge. Slots are part of it, looking to vulture machines that have been left in a position with positive expected value. So let me stop here. Jay listens to this show. Jay listens to every single episode of this show. I know who he is. I've met him in person. So Jay is the one who found this. And he contacted Max. And they contacted several others to come and play. I don't know exactly the way they uh, dealt with the money. I don't know if they shared a bankroll doing this. Whatever it was, they took a lot of risk with this because it's 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 still high variance even though it's a big edge as you'll hear in the rest of this article it's still a high variance so they they probably wanted to pool their resources which, and and also they needed additional accounts they they you can only do this once per account per uh per casino they could sign up for so I'm going to skip ahead in this article to talk about uh exactly what happened here Uh, when checking up the when checking out the sign up bonus situation, Jay also scrolled through the game selection, and he saw Ocean Magic in one of the lobbies. I took a look at it, Jay says, and realized that it started on the first spin in an advantageous position. Specifically, he saw that a wild bubble appeared in the first column, second row, and there's actually a picture of this here. So one of these wild Ocean Magic bubbles was actually sitting in a spot where you want it. It wasn't in the perfect spot. It wasn't the b- very bottom left, but it was all the way to the left on the third row up, which is still very advantageous. There's, there's variance to it, but there's, it's, it's quite advantageous. So he couldn't believe it. <laughs> no longer you have to vulture for it. Online, you, just, you, you start playing and it's right there. His first time playing, Jay didn't realize the full extent of the advantage. He only had a few hundred dollars in his account, and players can't see the board state of any bet denomination higher than what's in their account. He played several spins at a low denomination, and he said he didn't think much of it. So at the time, Jay just really thought he it was like brick and mortar. He was just inheriting a machine that happened to be in that state. Also, he couldn't scroll through the high denominations because he didn't have much in his account. And you can't scroll online to see the other denominations unless you have enough money to get there. Then it says, but on his next trip to New Jersey, Jay noticed a key detail. 
I realized that not only did the game start in an advantageous position on the dollar denomination, $2 denomination, $3 denomination each level, but each time that you switched denominations, the board went back to the original state for one spin. So if you played the denomination, the $1 denominations already, it didn't go back to that state. But if you, ha- if you played the $2 denomination for the first time, it started in that same state, and the $3 and the $5 and so on and so forth. So basically, for every denomination they offered, you had one shot at starting in that position. Then it would never be back there. So this is kind of a, a one-time thing you could do, which explains why they needed a lot of accounts that were well-funded. He returned to Atlantic City in January, and this time playing, planning to, pl- to play some large bets on the Super Bowl. His account was well-funded, five figures deep. That's when I realized the game started in that board state up to $3,000 a spin. At some casinos it was capped at 1000 but at, at several it went up to 3000 Jay could tell there was a serious opportunity here. The next step was to put a number on the seriousness of it. He contacted a friend with an actuarial background and asked for him to run the math on the value he was looking at. He got back to me and said that basically for one spin I was playing with a 126% edge. And then on three further spins I was playing with a 40% edge, which if it was only a $3 bet would not interest me, but when you're talking about a $3,000 bet that's quite substantial. So keep in mind 126% edge doesn't mean 126% return. It means 126% edge. That meant for every dollar you'd bet on average you would actually win $2.26. Not get back to 26 Actually, win 226 on a dollar bet. The, pr- the plot thickened. Jay called a friend in the Advantage Play community and suggested he fund an account and give it a try. Indeed, the board started in the exact same state at every denomination for each individual player the first time through. So he wanted to see if it was just him who got lucky this way or if every for every person is going to start this way. It turned out for every person is going to start this way. Then they dug further. It wasn't just this one casino that offered it. It was 13 casinos in New Jersey that offered the game. More numbers were run. Jay determined that the one person that one person playing Ocean Magic all the way up to the denominations once in that advantage state, and you could only do it once account once per account per casino, was worth on average about $80,000 to $100,000 across all the online casinos in New Jersey offering the game. Wow. Now this is on average. There's a lot of variance to this. You can win a lot more than 80 to 100K, or you could lo- actually you lose. You probably aren't going to lose across all 13 because uh, you're, you're playing 13 casinos, but, but you know, you, there is a lot of variance to it, especially at the high levels. You're going to go through each one from low to high, and you, just, you hope their high runs well. That's the problem is you're running the high you're – you're not running that many highs. So while there is a, a big edge there of about 80 and 100K, it's still a big-time variance. You, you actually probably can lose here individually. He says, then you factor in some sign-up bonuses and it became quite valuable. I think it was already valuable. <laughs> so it, it goes on to explain uh, about Max that – why he started Advantage Playing, which I won't bother to read. But then it goes on to say that Jay and his number-crunching friend had already done the work of making sense what the edge was. So Max got on a plane. They loaded up a couple of accounts, Max recalls, and had immediate success. In, in the most matter-of-fact manner imaginable, Jay describes the immediate success. The first account happened to get lucky and hit for $220,000. And they actually have a screenshot of it uh, 
having a balance of 218000 on the screen. At the typical online casino, the cashier page includes language indicating how long players should allow for a withdrawal to process. Some say for up to 48 hours, others say up to five business days. Jay says the Golden Nugget paid this account in full about 30 hours after the withdrawal request. So far, so good. So they, they did a test. They wanted to make sure if they're going to sink all this money into this, that the casinos are really going to pay them. Now, they weren't cheating, but they were advantage playing, and they were afraid that you know, maybe the casino is going to try to find some way not to pay them. So the first test they did worked in two ways. Number one, it got very lucky and won 220000 when the expectation was kind of like about 90000 And they got paid in a tiny bit more than a day. So far, so good, right? So he said, we then let all of our friends know about this crazy game, and pretty much everyone we knew flew in and made deposits. Under different circumstances, with a different type of game, a case could be made that Jay and his friends tried for too much too fast. And it it mentioned about how what what Phil Ivey did, that he tried to win too much, and that probably got him caught at the Baccarat. With Ocean Magic at the online casinos, though, the play was always going to be limited, and the goal was to always hit it as hard as they could while they could. It's over with once you win because there's no plays left, Jay explains. It's only advantageous for four spins at each denomination. So you're talking about maybe 80 spins, unless there are some re-triggers involved, and then you're done. Then that person has no reason to play on the site anymore. So so basically he's saying that once you've gone through it, you can't go back, so you've pretty much killed it for yourself. And and furthermore, uh, he doesn't say this, but... The truth is they were going to find this pretty fast and shut it down. This wasn't going to last forever. So, you, so that's the type of play you just hit hard and, and, and be done. He also says you can't minimize your win because you have no control over what's going to come out on that spin. He's talking about you, you can't even be uh, conservative about what you win for cover purposes because it just it just comes out. You can't... Uh, uh, you can't control it. But of course, of course, you could keep playing in a, po- a negative expectations state and bring down your wins. So I don't totally agree with him there, but I see why they don't. I see why you just get what you can and quit, especially since it was so lucrative. You're starting with two wilds. If five more wilds come out, you're, you're winning a quarter of a million dollars. So no matter what you do, you don't have any control over it. The other thing is it's not going to last. Once one person would hit it big, it's going to be gone on that site. So he said, I, I tell my friends and as much as they can win, they can win. So deposits were made and games were played. I wish he told me about this. You know, the truth is, though, I, I, this would have been tough on me. Oh, boy, I would have had a decision. You guys know I can't fly still. I haven't flown since I had my issues here. And I would have had to decide if I try to force myself on a cross-country flight. I don't think I would have wanted to take a train because I could have. it would take like too many days and I could have gotten there to find it was gone and then had to take a train all the way back. So I think I, I would have had to decide, do I force myself to possibly spend five hours in mental hell, which I may not be ready for, to take a five-hour flight with my uh, anxiety problems? I still haven't taken a flight. I'm going to take one pretty soon. But only a short one as a test. But for something like this, I don't know if I could have forced myself. Just pop some Xanax and hope it ends up okay. I wish he told me. I, well, I, it would have been a tough decision, though. It would have been a tough decision. Because I'd have to act quickly. I couldn't even like go take a test flight for an hour and see if it worked. Though I guess what I could have done is, is taken a partial flight, like done a layover between 
Vegas and and uh, like a fly to Philadelphia by way of Vegas, and then seeing if I handled the first leg okay. And if I didn't, then just abort, give up. And if I do, then just continue the rest of the way. My, my goal, honestly, I, I hate to interject my own situation in this, but my goal with the flights is to take a short one to Vegas pretty soon. And then if that goes well, then try like a little bit of a longer flight. And then if that goes well, then try something across the country. And if I can do that, then I think I'm okay. I think if I can fly across the country, then I'm probably okay. Especially if I can do it, if I can like take multiple flights and be okay, I think I'll be fine. I think with, I also think with each flight it'll get better. So I, I won't know until I try, but I, I would want to do the first one short so this way if it doesn't go well that I'm only trapped there for an hour. So I, I don't know what I would have done here if I was told about this. That would have been a tough decision. Anyway. Going back to this, deposits were made, some games were played, a lot of accounts lost. Even with a mathematical edge, sometimes you're going to brick out. There was a risk involved for Jay and his friends. I bet that would have happened to me. I, I run so bad in these things. I, I, I've run pretty bad with these type of advantage plays. And uh, I bet I'd be the guy <laughs> to lose here. I'd probably want to spread mine out with other people in this spot because I'd I know I'd be the one to lose here. I'd be the one to run bad. But overall, the results fell in line with, with his math- mathematician friend's calculations. Collectively, across the 13 sites, the players won about $900,000, according to Jay. They withdrew the first 400000 without any problem, but then it got complicated. On February 2nd, Resorts, which is a casino there, removed Ocean Magic. On February 5th, seven more New Jersey online casinos followed suit. Within two more days, the game was gone everywhere, and it was over. Jay posted a screenshot online of, of his winning Ocean Magic boards on February 6th and wrote, Oh, Bubbles, it was a good run. You'll be missed. We had about a full week, Max says, which was honestly more than we expected. But there was a detail they didn't see coming. The remaining half million dollars or so that they won wasn't being released to them inside of the standard time frame. Huh. Well, what's going to happen there? Are the New Jersey casinos really going to steal half a million bucks from them because they outsmarted them with Ocean Magic? None of this was illegal. There are two sides worth telling in a story like this. So we reached out to the casinos. We meaning the author of the article, not me. We tried to make contact with Borgata, Sugar House, Golden Nugget, Caesars, Betfair, and Hard Rock. In some cases, the contacts were generic. In, so, in other cases, we had direct phone numbers and email addresses for representatives who had absolutely no awareness – or who – sorry, who absolutely had awareness of the situation. Not a single voicemail or email was returned. We also tried to reach International Game Technology, IGT, the company that provided Ocean Magic to the casinos. Again, we couldn't get anywhere. As of February 11th, when we first spoke to Jay and Max, either they or their friends were struggling to get money from six different sites, ranging from about 30000 to 130000 In many cases, they said their customer service experiences were less than ideal. We were getting everyone from lower-level employees all the way up to management that are just straight-out BSing us, said Jay. We can't get anywhere. They're just stonewalling us at every turn. At every turn. Ask for a manager. Manager's not... Not in on a, uh, call on a Friday. We don't work Fridays. Call today. It's a snow day, etc. 
Based on my research in the state of New Jersey, if you hit the lottery, you hit a single casino jackpot in, ex- in excess of 50000 and you owe child support, they have a right to hold it. They're claiming they're running child support checks on people that aren't even withdrawing fifty k. Max related a similar experience with one casino. I requested management, and she told me something along the lines of, well, it's pending verifications for integrity from the game vendor, and it's pending legitimacy checks. She then brought up child support checks, which is not even in play, nor is it relevant. Jay said on February 11th he was about to turn to the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement to intervene. We tried to reach the... DGE, the Division of Gaming Enforcement, for comment on multiple occasions last week, but couldn't get an answer on the phone, couldn't leave a voice message due to a full mailbox, and got no response to an email outreach. It would be ideal to be able to explore multiple sides of the story, but only one side is talking. What makes the casino's apparent reluctance to address the situation particularly perplexing is the fact that some of those we reached out to have already paid the Ocean Magic players in full. Sugar House, after locking a player's account and telling him they brought the Department of Gaming Enforcement to investigate, released payment on February 13th. The day before that, Golden Nuggets, Director of Customer Service for Online Gaming, sent a polite email to a player telling him that he'd, quote, received verbal approval from executive leadership to pay the $66,320. Why would these casinos decline to issue a comment to the media when the situation has been resolved and the only remaining gripe against them is that they that might be that the payment was delayed by a week or so? One can only speculate. Embarrassment only get, uh, over getting beaten or over having stalled out payout process might be playing a role. Maybe the Department of Gaming Enforcement specifically instructed the, the operators not to comment publicly. Maybe it's at IGT's request. Whatever the case, across the board, somewhere on the way up the chain of command, a decision is being made to go silent. As of February 20th, which is now just eight days ago, Jay said the players are still owed money from three outlets. Borgata which told one of the players in an email that he had, quote, violated the terms of service. I'm not surprised it's more God after they will, what they pulled on Ivy. Was holding about 130000 according to Jay. There isn't anything in the Borgata terms and conditions that the players appear to have run afoul of, although it's possible, it's possible that the withdrawal delays due to any security review are accounted for in the fine print. Caesars allegedly owes them about 40000 but that particular payout situation was complicated by the fact that Ocean Magic was removed from the site with a player in mid-game with a board in, a, in, a, in an advantageous state. Jay says that it had a remaining upside of possibly as high as $200,000. That's an interesting question. Can they do that? Can they remove a game as you're in the most advantageous spot at high stakes? That should be illegal. They should be forced to let you finish it. Though I believe this wasn't intentional. I think they just pulled it and it happened to be currently in progress. They may not even have had a way to tell if, if it was in progress because it's, it's between spins. You know, They didn't pull it in the middle of a spin. They pulled it after a spin where it was still in an advantageous spot. Also, he said it had a remaining upside, but it's very possible what he means is they just hadn't run the, the higher denominations yet. And they write, and then there's the most perplexing holdout, Hard Rock. Jay claims the casino owes one player about $700, the the modest remaining balance in an account that lost a considerable amount. Isn't that weird? Someone lost a lot to Hard Rock, and they're holding the guy's final 700 that he didn't lose. Though I think they realize this is kind of a team situation, and they just want to keep everything. Uh, At least as long as they can. 
I've checked with four attorneys on this, said Jay, and not one of them has even a shadow of a doubt on whether any of us did was legal. I mean, if I thought I was even remotely in the wrong, I wouldn't push the, push the issue. I'd be happy with what we got, but nobody had, has said to me we did anything wrong. Everything was in the state of New Jersey. There were no VPNs used. Everybody played on their own account. They're basically not only holding the winnings, but our deposit money as well. So that's, that's basically the end of the story. I'm not going to read the end of the article. You can go read it if you want. But uh, the, it does say the Department of Gaming Enforcement in New Jersey is intervening, and they're helping to get them paid, and they think they probably will get paid. Well, let's talk about this. Um, was what they did unethical in any way? No, it was not. The casino has all the control of what games they offer. They have control in uh, how these games operate. I mean, yes, they buy them from outside vendors, but they they don't put a game out there until they are convinced it is a good game for them to run. It's a, a, a positive expectation for the casino to run. And they also have to examine if the game can be exploited by advantage players. And if it can be, how much can it be to where are, you know, are they ex- willing to accept it? So they have all the control. It's up to them. The burden is on them to present games to the public that cannot be beat. And if they do present beatable games and people beat them without cheating, which these people did not cheat, then it should be the casino's problem. They need to eat it. Much like if you sit down at a blackjack table and make terrible, terrible decisions... For example, if you hit a 20, uh, you're not entitled to your money back. It's, it's up to you to make the right decisions. So the casino is making decisions in what games they offer, and if they offer games that can be beaten by advantage players, then that's their problem. And the patron does not owe the casino the situation of always playing at a disadvantage. There's no implied contract between the gambler and the casino that the gambler's always going to be playing with the casino having the edge. The casino usually does. The casino has a right to. But if the casino makes a mistake and the player has an edge, that's their their fault. Now, I'm not talking about cheating. I'm not talking about manipulation or collusion with dealers and things like that. I'm talking about when there's actually an edge the player discovers and utilizes that's the casino's fault when they need to eat it. So they screwed up big time with these ocean magic machines. Fortunately, it only cost them 900000 which sounds like a lot, but for the casinos, collectively, that's not very much money. But still, I, I, I see how they're annoyed by it and how they wish they didn't have to pay. They, they feel like chumps. They should, to, to offer that well-known beatable game. And then leaving it in a state, in an initial state that's beatable. That's crazy. But they did it, and they need to take their lumps. And I, I believe the Department of Gaming Enforcement in New Jersey will probably side with the players and the remaining casinos that haven't paid. Most of the money's been paid by now, but 
there are those holdouts there. It looks like a little less than 200,000 from what I can see in the article. So Jay from this story is a listener to the show. He's going to hear this segment. And I'll be interested to hear what he thinks of it. I hope I got the details right. But this is this very interesting story. And it shows you how clueless sometimes these casino managers are. I'm pretty surprised that casino managers are not better versed on advantage play tactics. There's a lot of information available right online for them to see. And and why they don't make more of an effort to collect that information and utilize it to their own advantage to counter the advantage players, I don't know. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. Trader Risky, are you going to say something? No, no, no. Just accidentally hit the button. Oh, okay. But I think, I mean, wouldn't IGT... I mean, I would think they would consult with them on the games that they're offering. I, I don't know how this happened. The, the fact that they would start it in an advantageous state is crazy. Like, what would have made IGT to decide to do it this way? You know, when Jay first played it, he thought, oh, well, okay, I just lucked into it starting this way, and then he couldn't believe it when he found that every account starts this way at every denomination. Like, why even start it that way? It's not like it's not like they're even promoting it to the players. It's just they're actually starting it in a, in a way for the players to win. Now, maybe it was a conscious decision, thinking that the you know, the players will start off winning and feel like they've got an edge. You know, not, not a real edge, but like the, they'll they'll go, oh, well, I'm winning, I'm, I'm getting lucky, and then keep playing and lose it all back. Maybe it's it's kind of like a loss leader. But but how stupid were they not to know that that these machines for a long time now have been vultured by these advantage players. I mean, of, of all machines to put in there, I couldn't, I can't believe when I read it was ocean magic, I said, Oh my God, everyone knows about this. I want to say everyone, I don't mean really everyone, but anyone who, who does any kind of advantage slot play knows about this. I'll, I'll, I'll look through ocean magics as I walk by when I see them. So it's crazy that they, Offer them at high denominations and start them in such a state. It's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable incompetence. The question is: Was this IGT's decision, or was it the casino's decision? Well, it wasn't one casino because all they all started this way. So I don't. I think just maybe this was a random mistake that they just all started this way. Maybe IGT just shuffled the board this way it landed, and they're like, okay, we'll start them all this way. Maybe they told the casinos we'll start them we'll start everybody in an advantage in advantageous state which won't last, so they'll feel good when they win it first. I don't know. As far as the money being held up, I can actually understand why when someone hits these big wins online and then immediately cashes out, why they, they don't want to process it immediately. They've got to check that someone didn't Screw the system in some way, hack the system in some way, you know, game the random number generator in some way. They, they, for this amount of money, I can understand why it takes a little bit longer for them to just check that nothing illegal was done. So I, I kind of understand that part of it. it. It's it's unnerving and maddening if you're the player. I'm not saying I'm not blaming the players for being frustrated. I, I'd be crapping my pants waiting to see if they're going to release my money if I had this type of money on these sites after winning. But I can understand it. 
what I can't understand is after they look into it to still be holding it. And I think some of them are just being intentionally difficult because they're mad. And I think the reason they're not speaking about this is, is simple. They don't want to admit that these type of plays exist. They they don't want to bring attention. See, this this, this article is, hmm, why aren't they saying anything? Well, I, I know why they're not saying anything. They don't want players to think about stuff like this. Machines that have these wilds that stay around or some state where the machine's better. Yes, the player, the average player kind of realizes it, but they don't want to draw people's attention that the right thing to do is to play these machines when they're in their best state and to not play them when they're not. And that's a very, very advantage, a very, very basic slot advantage play tactic to just play machines when they're in their advantage state and not when they're not. But they don't want the average gambler to hear about this and think about this. They don't want the average gambler to walk up to Ocean Magic and go, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, I read in an article that if there's no bubbles on the screen, this isn't worth playing. I'm going to come back later and look for a bubble on the screen. They, they don't want people to think about this. Not just with Ocean Magic, with any kind of machine like this. They don't want players to start getting in their mind that you should only play them at a certain time in a certain state. So this is something they don't want to publicize. Even if they're doing the right thing and paying the players, they don't want to publicize. They, they, just, they, they want this to be a secret. It's not so much embarrassment. They just don't want other players emulating them. I talked before about the must-hit machines where they have to pay out a jackpot once it gets to a certain point. And yet, these machines are so misleading, they don't pay until nearly the very end of that point. So, like, a must-hit is $5,000. People are playing it when it's at 4200 not realizing how far it is because it starts at 4000 And these people are really just throwing money away because the machine is really, really negative expectation at that point. But there's people who play it who don't understand that they have no shot at hitting it. I think that should be illegal, but the, putting that aside, they want players to just play. They don't want players to feel hopeless when they sit down because the machine's not in a certain state that it's going to make them lose almost almost certainly. So that's why they don't want to publicize this. That's why they don't want to comment on it. They can't stop people like Jay from commenting on it, but that's why they don't want to say anything. So a very interesting story. And it's amazing how stupid casino management can really be sometimes. And it's funny because we're going to have another topic on this show. In fact, I'll, I'll do this topic next. Where I actually think casino management isn't being stupid. And someone else thinks they are. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. Here's some comments in the chat room about this. You can text me, by the way, 775-372-8355. forgot to mention that. Forumore says IGT will be paying the casinos. I'm positive of it. It's their screw-up. Jay also mentioned the Borgata is left to pay out right now. Yeah, I I mentioned that. I guess they wrote that before I said it. Uh, Disposition says, so he played online or in his hotel room at the property? It doesn't really matter. All you have to do is be in the state of New Jersey. You could be 
sitting right at the border in your car on the freeway. Uh, let's see what else in the chat room. Uh, hey, Druff, can you edit this entire segment out before you put it in the archives? Why would I do that? I don't know. Why, why would he want me to edit this whole, whole segment out? Uh, four more, if you, as I've mentioned before, I'm not giving anything away. This, this is pretty well known. Casino executives know about this. I mean, it's not, I'm not giving away anything. There's, there's a website. Go, go look. Explaining this whole thing. I, I wouldn't come on this show and give away some sort of play that relatively few people know about. And there are some. There, there's one I know of in Vegas that, uh, can still be done. Not about ocean magic, but, uh, and it's nothing huge. It's a small thing, but, uh, I'm not going to go say it on this show because that's that's not what you're supposed to do. If if you do this, you're you're ruining it for those that had it before you, and that may still do it. So, that that would be a betrayal of, of someone's trust to do, and you'd be hurting yourself as well. But this ocean magic thing has been around a long time, and it, it's pretty well known. Four more says, well, you'd be surprised how many people don't know about this. Well, okay, but there's not that much opportunity in it. It's, if there was, I'd be there right now doing it, but there really isn't. You're going to make a few dollars on average, and usually you're going to find nothing. You're going to scroll through all five or whatever denominations and find nothing. That's what you're, that's what you're going to usually going to find. It, it's fairly rare to actually find them in the right state. Why? There's actually a lot of people already competing for it. <laughs> a lot of people walk through the casinos and look at Ocean Magic now. So, so trust me, Jay himself sent me this story and said, you can discuss this on radio. And believe me, Jay is not someone who wants to just hand out advantage plays to the public. But th- that's how confident he is that this is something that's okay to release. Okay, so... Let me get to the next topic here. I want to talk about the situation in Vegas currently. Is Vegas suffering from a problem to where customers are being driven away? Is Vegas in decline? Do they have a problem that's escalating on their hands that they're not acknowledging yet? Well, I got into a pretty long discussion back and forth with the author of an article about this topic. The author's name is Jeff Huang, H-W-A-N-G. And he wrote an article on ggbmagazine.com, Global Gaming Business Magazine. He wrote this on February 22nd. I'm not really familiar with this site, but if you Google ggbmagazine.com or Google uh, 
Google Google solving the Las Vegas trip value problem, and you'll probably find it. That's the name of the article: solving the Las Vegas strip value problem. Someone sent me this. I believe a radio listener, and I read it. And not only did I decide I would talk about it on the show this week, but I also directly contacted the author, Jeff Wang, on Twitter because there was something I disagreed with here. I agreed with part of what he said, and I disagreed with part of what he said. So here's the article. I'll read parts of it to you guys, the relevant parts. Question, is there a solution to the Las Vegas strip value problem? The first thing we need to do is recognize that there's not just one strip value problem here that needs to be solved, but at least three, all of which are related. Number one, the Las Vegas strip casino hotel supply problem. Number two, the gambling value problem. Number three, the nickel and dime culture. Now, number three is pretty obvious. Number two, the gambling value problems. He's referring to the fact that games are getting worse and worse for the player. The house has a higher and higher edge over the years in Vegas, which is true. Number one, the casino hotel supply problem. He's, he's talking about how it, it's getting harder and harder for players to find good value at hotels on the Las Vegas Strip, which is also true. So he says, to recap, the Las Vegas Strip casino hotel supply problem is in large part a function of the strip hotel casino supply imbalance created by the process of literally imploding the old low-end casinos, hotel casino supply, such as Sands, Desert Inn, Dunes, Boardwalk, Frontier, Stardust, Riviera, etc., and replacing it with strictly four- and five-star supply, such as Venetian Palazzo, Wynn Encore, Bellagio, Aria, etc., or in some cases, nothing, like the Frontier and Stardust replacements are about a decade past due, and the Riviera is now part of a convention center. To to reiterate, he writes, the problem is not so much that the strip hotel ADRs have been on the rise. That is what you'd expect to happen when you replace the boardwalk with the Aria, but rather that there is increasing disproportionate lack of low-end hotel casino supply on the strip. This, in turn, has led to the probability that we are unwittingly pricing out the the more populous lower end of the Las Vegas visitor market and stunting visitor growth outright. Now, 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 so far, I agree. So far, I agree. Now, this this may be what they want. Maybe they do want to price out the lower end of the visitor market or at least push them elsewhere like downtown. Maybe that's the point. But I, I agree that this has happened. I agree that the price of the average hotel room, for various reasons, has really gone up on the strip and, and, and way past inflation. He goes on to write, Indeed, 2018 marked the second straight down year in total Las Vegas visitor volume making it only the third time Las Vegas has posed two straight years of visitor decline since 1970, the first year for which the Las Vegas Convention of Visitor Bureau shows data. The previous two incidences co- coincided with U.S. economic recession, 1981-82, and 2008-2009. to While the current softness comes at a time when unemployment is low and consumer confidence is high. Meanwhile, the fast-growing Las Vegas Convention business posted a decline in attendance for the first time since 2010. Now, by the way, in, in an ensuing debate, it was pointed out by Steve Ruddock, who's on uh, Poker Fraudler to Steve-O. Uh, he pointed out that these have actually all been good years for the last four years, just the decline is from a, you know, a high point. So he thinks that's not as significant. So Huang goes on to write, 
the stated ADRs do not account for the rapidly increased resort fees, which now add approximately 25 to 30 percent. Resort fees first hit the strip in 2008 and went from zero in 2007 to a current range in the neighborhood of 29 to 45 dollars. By lack of low-end casino, hotel supply on the Strip is not entirely a Strip value problem. So he's showing the Las Vegas uh, uh, visitor volume. And what he's showing here in a chart, he's showing uh, total visitors, convention attendance, non-convention attendance, and, uh, and Las Vegas Strip. And... What he's showing here is that the the average D, the ADR, the average daily rate for the hotels, that's what he means by ADRs, by the way, that uh, these have been slowly going up, or actually rapidly going up, the last few years slowly going up. It, it went from 119.53 in 2013 to 138.82 in 2018, a pretty big rise. But, but however, in 2016, it was 135.87, so it's only slightly up since then to 138.82. It's only a few percentage. Probably about you know, the same as inflation. So he that's that's his first point that the lower end visitors are being priced out, and he shows that there is a change in, in total visitors to Vegas of minus one point sixty eight in two thousand seventeen and minus zero point twenty three in two thousand eighteen. However, I, I will say two thousand eighteen and two thousand seventeen they had more than forty two vi- million visitors. For only the fourth time ever, the other two being fifteen and sixteen, as uh, Steve O pointed out. But th- that's not really the part we were arguing. I mean, I, I I don't know if this is something they're doing intentionally, pricing certain people out. They might be, but I think we can agree it's happening. I think we can agree it's it is getting expensive to go to Vegas. It, it is no longer the value vacation. It's no longer a place you can take the family for cheap fun. It is no longer a place aimed, at least a strip, aimed aimed at the the lower end uh, customer who's not going to spend much money. The more interesting discussion comes from the second part of the article, which he defines as the strip gambling value problem. He wrote in the... February issue here, the question was posed about the future of blackjack. Will millennials ever cozy up to it? The question is typical of gambling discussions regarding millennials in that it assumes the player is fundamentally changing. But the reality is that blackjack came to dominate the casino floor and helped power the growth of the casino industry primarily because of three key features. Number one, the game was beatable. Number two, under basic strategy, blackjack was the lowest edge card game on the casino. And number three, due to the above, the blackjack was the game that sophisticated gamblers, a.k.a. non-idiots, played and wanted to be seen playing. Well, I'm already diverging here. The game being beatable was known, but most people realized they couldn't do it unless they counted cards. Most blackjack players for decades were aware of card counting and that it could be used to win, but most people thought it was so difficult that they didn't want to learn to do it. In fact, that was my attitude. I had just always imagined it being very, very hard and something you must have a you you must have to have a killer memory to be able to do, like a killer short term memory. And that's actually not true. And when I actually looked into it, it actually was not hard to learn at all. 
It was, it was far easier to learn how to be a winning blackjack player than it was a winning poker player. So I, I don't think people were playing it because they knew the game was beatable. That's only a small percentage. Uh, he is right that people liked it because using basic strategy, which you can learn relatively easily, that the casino edge was low, so you'd walk away a winner, a winner a lot of times, even though you'd lose overall in the long run. And and, uh, and also that people felt like, oh, this is the game with the smart people play. Okay, fine. He writes, the problem is none of these things are true anymore. And it's not so much the player has changed, but the game. The house advantage of casino games in general has been on the rise for over two decades. This is obvious with regard to slot machines, but when we look at when we look at the slot the slot hold percentages, but it's also true of table games and can be observed through the changes in blackjack. To combat card counting and the rise and raise the house advantage in blackjack, casino operators have made a number of quote enhancements, which are actually bastardizations, to blackjack over the past couple of decades. They utilize continuous shuffle machines, which eliminate card counting. They implemented six to five blackjack, meaning you get paid six to five, like sixty dollars on a fifty dollar bet, instead of three to two, which is like seventy five on a fifty dollar bet. Uh, first, as a way to offer single deck blackjack before going ahead and slapping it on multi deck shoe games as well, which added one point thirty nine percent to the base house advantage, while also effectively eliminating the card counting risk. That's true. That's exactly what happened. Three, they added high edge side bets to spice up blackjack. That's like betting on what's going to come out, you know, how many queens are going to come out, how many kings are going to come out. You can bet on things like that and a big house edge on those. Number four, simply replace blackjack tables outright with newer proprietary games, which often carry a significantly higher house edge than blackjack. The result is that blackjack has become increasingly marginalized, where blackjack accounted for 77.2% of tables and 50.3% of table game revenue on the Las Vegas Strip in 1985. Blackjack only represented 50.1% of units and 30.5% of table game revenue in 2017 on the Strip. We should also note that the decline in Blackjack's contribution as a percentage of revenue is also largely attributable to the rise of higher-end Baccarat, that said, the key figure in the table game mix. Non-traditional games like three-card poker, let it ride, Gao, and other proprietary games accounted for 17.3% of table game units on the Las Vegas Strip, whereas such games only accounted for 1.1% of the Strip table games in 1985. The reason for Blackjack's decreasing relevance is not an increasing lack of interest in the game of Blackjack itself, but rather a concerted effort on the part of casinos to destroy it. This is not hyperbole. Instead, it's simple economics. When you raise the price of blackjack by making it unbeatable and raising a house advantage, you lower the demand for blackjack. And casino operators as a group clearly do not want to offer blackjack in any traditional like, traditionally likable form. Put it differently, when the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, the Fed lowers interest rates. If the casino operators actually wanted to stimulate blackjack activity, they would simply revert to the more traditional, low-edge, countable, and beatable formats. Stop here. Stop. Stop. False. Totally false. This is a case where someone takes something that bothers them. And this guy is clearly an intelligent guy. He clearly knows how to card count. He understands the game of blackjack very well. He understands the recent changes casinos have made to it over the past two decades that have ruined the game in most casinos. He understands all that, and it, it bothers him. It bothers me, too. It bothers any kind of player who had the ability to either play it with an edge or at the very least play it with a very low house edge. And now you can't anymore. And for those that like blackjack, that's frustrating. I I agree. Okay? 
Personally, I see why it bothers him. But the problem is people like to take something that they're passionate about, that they feel is wrong, and then attribute other negative consequences to it that don't necessarily have a connection. Take a look at uh, the whole thing with the autism and the vaccinations. Some people decide they don't trust vaccinations, they don't like vaccinations, they they push the narrative that vaccinations cause autism even after that's been disproven. They still push it. Uh, You you have the recent stories uh, about hate crimes being committed because Trump is president, even though we have a lot of hoaxes here. It seems like all the high-profile ones are fake, but uh, there's people, you know, there, there are still hate crimes. There's always been hate crimes in this country. So, you know, a gay person gets beaten up, a black person gets beaten up by a white person, and it's assumed, okay, this is because Trump is president. No, this was happening before Trump was president. You, you can't just assume that because these things happen that it's because Trump is president. They're, they're, these are complicated issues. Very complicated issues. I won't get into that whole political discussion, but uh, people like to attribute that. Um, there, there's so many different examples of this, where someone takes something that they don't like, and then they say, well, look, because this has happened now, this also has happened. But that's not always true. But they want to say it because they want to strengthen their argument why whatever they're complaining about is bad, how it has further consequences. And, and, and often it really doesn't. Often it's their own bias that's talking. Sometimes it really does. Sometimes they're right, but, but often they're wrong. Well, this is a case where the author is wrong. This is a case where the author is taking something that personally bothers him and is attributing his own feelings upon the average gambler in Vegas. Even when I played a lot more blackjack, I hardly play blackjack anymore, but even when I played it a lot, I used to sometimes wonder, why are they even offering these beatable games in places where they don't have to? I'll give you a good example. Casino Royale. Okay? Casino Royale used to have a very good and beatable blackjack game. Only a double deck for some reason. But they they had a good and beatable double deck game, and I don't know why. Why do I say I don't know why? Because Casino Royale is a dumpy casino in the middle of the strip that has a low-end clientele who mostly goes there to get drunk. Uh, most gamblers in Casino Royale are just not very sophisticated, aside from the few advantage players who descend upon it when they find something they can take advantage of. The, the typical gambler in Casino Royale is very unsophisticated and often very inebriated. That, that's the truth. That's the way it's always been there. And I remember sitting there at the double-deck game, which actually had uh, allowed you to bet to like, per hand. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe they were providing a beatable game. And and sure enough, they were were totally clueless there too. The the eye in the sky wasn't watching. Nobody cared. You, You could really get away with a lot in that game. And I asked myself, why are they offering it? Why are they offering a double deck game with good rules, with good penetration, and they're not watching it? Why? Who's appreciating this other than advantage players? Who's saying, oh yeah, I'm going to play this game because it's double deck with good rules and good penetration? Nobody's saying that except the customers they don't want. 
And I, I watched this game sit there for years until they finally realized it and removed it. When I would play that game, I would sit there you know, spreading from you know, 25 to, to 125 or 50 to 250. Everybody else around me is betting like three to five bucks. They don't know what they're doing. I remember laughably a, a woman was dealt an, an 11 and she stood. She actually stood on 11. And the dealer tried to explain it to her. I tried to explain it to her. And she said, no, don't tell me how to play. I want to stand. You couldn't make a worse play in blackjack than standing on 11. Well, I guess maybe hitting a 20 is worse. But you can't make a a much worse play. <laughs> standing on 11. There's never any, unless you can see what's coming. And you know the order of cards will win for you if you stand on 11 rather than double on 11 or hit on 11. There's no downside to hitting 11. If you don't want to double, at the very least, hit it. But that's the type of player that was playing with me at Casino Royale. You think you think that woman who stood on 11 had any clue that this was a good game? Now forget that extreme example. You think the average drunk Casino Royale $5 better had any clue what made a good blackjack game? The answer is no. So I wondered why these casinos like Casino Royale were even offering it. And even in properties where the average customer was betting higher and more sophisticated about blackjack, I still thought they were offering games that were too good. Because I saw the type of player I'd sit next to and all they were really concerned about was getting lucky. Now, yeah, if if you made it super extreme like super extreme rule changes they would have balked, but they kind of slowly rolled this out. Restricting the the, the hands you can double on to 9, 10, and 11. Uh, sometimes no double after split. The, taking away the surrender option. Uh, then introducing the 6 to 5, which was huge. Uh, something else they added a while ago was the uh, hitting on soft 17 instead of standing on soft 17. Like, like, the average player has no clue that when the dealer hits on soft 17, it's worse for the player than if they sta- they stand on soft 17. Most players don't know that. Most players don't even pay attention to that. It's only advantaged players who really know that standing on soft 17 is better for them. So I always wondered why this didn't happen earlier. And when I saw the 6-5 to blackjack games, which Harris invented, by the way, Harris invented this, Six to five single deck, and six to five single deck is an interesting story because the average blackjack player knew there were card counters and knew the card counters liked single deck, so they got in their heads single deck is a winning game. So Harris came up with a brilliant idea, and I'm not being sarcastic; it really was a brilliant idea to offer single deck, but make it six to five payout for blackjack, and then people would flock to it, thinking, "Oh, single deck! This is what the pros play. This is what I should play." And they didn't realize that 6-5 to five makes it so terrible that they shouldn't be playing it. And this is back when 6-5 to five was only the single deck, nowhere else. And I used to see shoe games that were sitting there 3-2 to two black, blackjack that nobody was playing. And, and right next to it, there were like three single deck players, uh, three single deck tables which were jammed with players paying 6-5 to five blackjack. And I'm like, oh my god, people are so stupid. 
And I also realized that Harris was damn smart. Can you believe those words are coming out of my mouth? Harris being damn smart. <laughs> about this, they were. They were about this. They realized who their customer really was. Now, why did it take so long to realize this? Why did this only start in the early 2000s? Why wasn't 6 to 5 appearing before that? Why were the rules mostly good in places in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s? Why? Well, back in those days, especially 80s and beforehand, the average gambler in Vegas was very different than the average gambler you see today. I actually got to see both. Now, you may ask, how did I get to see both if I was not 21 at any time in the 80s? Well, because I still went to Vegas. My parents still took me. I went there fairly often. I was fascinated with the whole gambling culture. I didn't get to actually play, but I observed. I talked to my parents about it. They were never big gamblers, but they... You know, they they did play some blackjack when they went. And I, I got to observe the type of customer that went to Vegas in the 70s and in the 80s. The type of customer that went to Vegas in those decades were people who enjoyed to gamble. You usually didn't go to Vegas prior to the 90s unless you liked to gamble. Why? Because... Uh, that was the main focus there. There weren't many entertainment options. There were shows, but that was pretty much it. What Vegas offered you in the 70s and 80s was cheap hotel rooms, cheap food, fairly generous comps, gambling, and shows at night. That was it. A lot of this touristy, gimmicky stuff you see in Vegas these days, that was not there prior to, like, the 90s. The, the first thing that appeared like that was the Mirage in 89. The real influx of that came starting around 93. By the mid-90s, it was in full swing. And since then, we've been slowly progressing to where gambling is becoming less and less important to the Las Vegas economy. And this article doesn't really mention that. But that's that's what's been happening. Las Vegas has been more, more focusing upon hotel revenue. It's no longer a loss leader. Restaurant revenue, no longer a loss leader. Show revenue, no longer a loss leader. And just general entertainment. They have other entertainment products. That didn't exist before. That are expensive. They don't have to... And, and conventions, that's another big thing. I forgot the conventions. That's another big thing that every year is growing in Vegas. It's becoming huge. More and more conventions are coming to Vegas. and They make a fortune on those. So that's the new business model in Vegas. They don't need to count on the gamblers. As a result, also... Because people are coming for other purposes, because you have a lot of people coming to Vegas now who just don't gamble, who barely gamble, the people who come to Vegas now on average are far less sophisticated about gambling because that's not the only reason to go there. 
me give you a simple example. Uh, I used to like playing online poker much more on sites that had a sports book attached. Why? Because a lot of the people in the poker games were sports bettors who weren't very good at poker. Because there were two reasons to deposit on those sites. Sports and poker. And I much preferred to play the sports bettors in poker than the poker players in poker. Because the sports bettors were much worse on average. And the sites where I had the highest win per hand, adjusted for the blinds I was playing, were always the ones that had a sports book associated with them. That's what would draw in the fish. Everyone listening to this show, if you're a, even a semi-competent poker player, you want to play against sports bettors, trust me. Similarly, the person gambling in Vegas who's there for purposes other than gambling probably is not a very sophisticated gambler. Whereas in the 70s and 80s, there weren't many reasons to be in Vegas if you were not going to gamble. So if they tried to offer 6 to 5 blackjack in, say, uh, 1985, that table would sit empty and the patrons would have laughed in the faces of the dealers trying to deal it. People were aware in 1985 that 6 to 5 is crap. They didn't try it in 85, but had they tried it, it would have been a flop. It would have never caught on. And casinos felt for decades, and for a while it was mostly correct, that they had to offer games with a relatively low house edge in order to attract gamblers to come play, or otherwise they just won't play. If they feel like the, the edge is too high against them, they're just not going to play, and they're gonna, they're, they know enough to be aware of it. Now, they always had something for the people who didn't care about the house edge. That was slot machines. Slot machines have always had a, a crappy return, though it's worse now than it used to be. But slot machines always were a bad proposition. But as far as table games, you just didn't have that many ignorant table game players in old Vegas. But in New Vegas, where it's an entertainment destination, you have plenty. Now, for a while, they didn't realize this. So throughout the 90s, they're still offering all these great blackjack games and good pay table video poker. And they don't realize that their clientele has changed in that way. And then... Harris realized it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe people really are ignorant enough these days to accept six to five blackjack because we have a different type of client here now for the most part. Oh, sure, we'll lose some people who will notice how crappy this is and not want to play. But let's think about this. Maybe we do want to lose those people anyway. Anyone smart enough, or I should say informed enough, to know that 6 to 5 blackjack sucks is probably someone that we won't beat out of much money anyway. Even if we have an edge on them, they're probably a good basic strategy player. We're going to squeeze a little bit out of them, but by the time we factor in our costs and the comps and all that, we're not going to make much at all, if anything. So if they don't want to come back, fine. Screw them. 
The players we want to keep are the ones who are ignorant enough to play any game that we give them and say, thank you very much, can we have some more? They realized that. And it wasn't an instant process of realization. As this article mentions, they they slowly rolled this all out. I think they were almost like in disbelief. They thought, well, okay, people are playing six to five single deck, but that's because everyone thinks single deck is good. Can we really try this somewhere else? Can we really try this at shoe games? Let's give it a try. Oh my God, they're playing the shoe games too. They don't care. I can tell you what the average gambler thinks about because I have plenty of friends outside of gambling. People who like to recreationally gamble when they go to Vegas but are not knowledgeable about it at all. Some of these people are smart too. These are not idiots but about gambling they're kind of idiots sometimes. <laughs> so, And they ask me. They know that I know. So I, I've told this story before but there's a woman that once asked me can you give me some tips on blackjack? So I gave her some tips on blackjack, and then I said, most of all, do not play 6 to 5. This is back when 6 to 5 wasn't everywhere like it is now. There, was, there are plenty of 3 to 2 games back then. This is probably about 10, 10 plus years ago. Uh, I, I said, don't play 6 to 5. I explained to her why 6 to 5 is terrible. And I said, that's the most important thing you can take away from my advice here. She understood. She said she understood. She said she won't play 65. I talked to her later after her trip was over. And she told me, oh, I got lucky here. I got unlucky here. I said, well, wait a minute. Hold on. The place you said you got lucky, there's only 6 to 5 tables there. She said, oh, yeah, I played them, but I did really well. I go, well, no, no, hold on. I, th- I thought you are not going to play 6 to 5. Oh, yeah, I know, but I, I, I tried the 3 to 2 game, and I got so unlucky. And I'm like, no, this place is unlucky. I, I'm going to go play this, this other place where I've always done well. And yeah, I played 6 to 5, and I won money. Look at that. And I go, oh, my God, this person doesn't understand. Or they, they're, they're, they're either they can't understand or they're, like, willfully ignorant. I don't know what the hell it is. But they, they even being told fully how bad 6 to 5 blackjack is, how much more of an edge the house has, how they can avoid that by simply playing 3 to 2, they still went to play it because they felt it was in a luckier casino. That's what gamblers think about. They think about, what's lucky? Where do I have my luck? They also like to jackpot chase. That's why they have these side bets now where you can win 40 to 1 when really you should be paid 100 to 1. Or they'll have slot machines with jackpots or other jackpots you can get. You know, jackpots are large payouts, things where they're unlikely to hit and there's a huge house edge on them, but people like them because they're exciting. People want the excitement of being able to win something big like that every so often, even if in the long run, it's horrible for the player. So that's what people care about. They care about chasing a jackpot. They care about short-term luck, which machine was lucky, which casino was lucky. That's what they think about. They don't think about Rules in blackjack or payouts in blackjack or pay tables in video poker. Most people just don't think about it anymore and most people don't even know about it anymore. I have people play video poker and they ask me, uh, you know, in this spot on double double bonus poker, what should I have done? And I go, okay, well, I can answer that, but just separate question here. What was the pay table 
Uh, I don't know. I, but it's double double bonus. I go, no, no, but there's a lot of different double double bonuses. Uh, some are good and some are terrible. What? They, did you not pay attention to that? No, no. I just enjoy double double bonus. I just played. Well, that's, that's the right to do. If they have fun, I'm not going to say they can't do it. Obviously, they, you can do what you want with your own money. But they just didn't care, or they weren't even aware in some cases that pay tables are different. They just think double double bonus has one pay table and that's it. There's not variance in that. From casino to casino, from machine to machine. People just are ignorant to this, or they don't want to know, or if they do know, they kind of tune it out. And that's what the average gambler is today. Are there no informed gamblers left? No, of course not. There's plenty. In fact, there's plenty of informed gamblers who are not advantage players. There are some informed gamblers who do no form of advantage play, but they do seek out the best video poker pay table. They seek out only the three to two paying blackjack games. Those are kind of what I refer to as the old school gamblers, not advantage players, but like old school gamblers that will only play small house edge games. But there's not many of them. The average, the average gambler just wants to play and try to get lucky. And Vegas realized that. And Vegas especially on the Strip. They are seeking to only retain the gamblers that are a pretty reliable profit. They don't want to have to grind out a small profit from the good basic strategy player at a good rules blackjack game. Yeah, they'll grind out a profit over time, but not much of one. They, they don't want those players anymore. They're, 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 they just take up space. They, they use up resources. It's slow to get money from them. Screw them. They'll take them at high limits because at high limits everything's multiplied. Then they, even with a small edge, they get a lot of money. But outside of that, they don't want them. If these players don't want to come back, they say, "Great, goodbye. This is easy for us. We don't have to kick anyone out. You're showing yourself the door." I'm sure some of you, in fact, a lot of you, have had the experience of dating someone that is nice, but you're just not really into them anymore. You kind of wish they'd just go away. You kind of wish the person would just forget about you. You don't want to break their heart and break up with them and upset them. You just kind of wish they'd lose interest. I've had that before. I just wish the girl would stop calling me and it's going to forget I exist, kind of regret got into the whole thing in the first place. But it, it usually doesn't work that way. Usually you've got, to, you've got to get rid of them and then they're mad and bitter and hurt and especially if they're otherwise a nice person, you feel bad. The easiest you can have is if someone like that just stops calling and mutually doesn't want to talk to you anymore either. Well, for the casino, that's what they want. They, they love it when the clientele they really don't want in the first place just chooses on their own to leave. So they're doing this by design. They want it. This, this is what they want to see happen. But this guy's article, this Jeff Wang, who is otherwise an intelligent guy... You can tell by reading his article as an intelligent guy. Is, is forcing himself to come to a conclusion that the degradation of all these games is driving people out of Vegas. So what I said to Jeff on Twitter, you can look at the whole exchange back and forth. And then he goes on to write, I'm not going to read this part, but he, he goes on to write a third section about nickel, the nickel and dime ca- culture 
about all the resort fees and the uh, parking fees and stuff like that. Um, I remember my parents were staying at Caesars. They couldn't believe that they charged $12 for like a few Keurig cups to use in the Keurig machines there. We laughed at that. Uh, my parents didn't have to pay it because I, I knew this beforehand and I, I actually brought Keurig cups for them. So uh, they didn't have to pay it. But this this does irritate people. If Vegas is losing anyone, it really is mainly because of reason one and reason three in his article. Reason one, that lower-end customers are being priced out. And reason three, the nickel-and-dime culture is irritating people. And when I talk to people about Vegas... Those are the complaints I hear all the time from average gamblers. Average gamblers do not complain, oh, I can't find a 3-2 to two blackjack anymore. I, I don't hear that often except from people who are card counters or are very old-school blackjack players that are really you know, purists about it. Barely hear that, though. I also don't hear, oh, man, I don't come to Vegas anymore because the video poker pay tables suck. Nope, don't hear that either. What I hear are, I hate resort fees. I hate parking fees. I hate how the restaurants have gotten so expensive. I hate how the comps have been decreased. I hate how the hosts have been neutered and don't have much power anymore to do anything for you. I hate how hotel rooms are so expensive. I hate how any trip to Vegas becomes an expensive trip. I hate how they just nickel and dime you for everything. That I hear a lot from average ordinary people who just go to Vegas to get away and have some fun. And those people might be the ones they're losing. And they probably don't want to lose them. I think this is a mistake. But the reason this is happening and we've had we had someone on here from killresortfees.com the woman who's a lawyer that uh, has been on a quest to end resort fees the reason they charge resort fees the reason they charge parking fees the reason there's all this nickel and diming is because there is unfortunately a war involving hotel search engines that hotels have found that if they're not at the top the top meaning the cheapest, of the list of hotels you search for in a certain class, then you're going to get screwed, you meaning the hotel. Every hotel wants to be listed as the cheapest in whatever class of hotel they are. They're not worried, you know, the Bellagio is not worried about competing with Motel 6, but they are worried about competing with Caesars. So they all want to compete with each other in their same class, and they all want to show the lowest price. And the problem is, if you show the actual prices of everything combined, then it appears very high. And if your competitor is leaving out things like resort fees and parking fees, and they're just listing their base price, then they appear to be much cheaper than you are, even if they're not. And that's what Caesars discovered when they had no resort fees and used to advertise, hey, we have no resort fees. They quickly added resort fees because they realized that they were getting killed in the search engines because the MGM properties were showing up much cheaper. 
when they really weren't. They just had resort fees tacked on on top of that, and the person didn't know that till they were done booking. The only solution to this, unfortunately, has become a vicious cycle. No one wants to be you – know, like the industry can't get together and say, hey, let's just end these fees and, and just include everything in one price. They, they Wasn't it a tax issue too she was talking about, Druff, where maybe on the resort fees they don't have to pay taxes on it? Is that possible? It was, but not anymore. They, they tax them now too. The, the government's got wise. All right, because I think that decision yeah, was coming down. Yeah, but, yeah. So, but no, they just, they're, they're stuck now because no, no property wants to lead the way and say, okay, we're going to get crappy results in these search engines and, and get beaten, but we're going to be honest with our price. Like, they, the Caesars tried that already and they got killed. So, so now everybody's just kind of resigned to the fact that it's going to be this way. And the only way it's going to stop is if laws are passed, which they should be. They haven't been. I'm surprised they haven't been yet, but the, there need to be consumer laws passed making it illegal to display a price online. That does not include all mandatory fees. If they if they don't want to include taxes, that's fine. These taxes are uniform uh, across the city. They should honestly show those too. But but if you you don't want to show government taxes, fine because at least the the property is not gaining from that. But th- they should never be able to list a partial price and, and pretend that's the price. Again, what what, what would stop a hotel from saying that it's a dollar a night, but the resort fee is one hundred fifty dollars a night? They could do it. They really could. There'd be nothing stopping anyone from doing that today. And we're getting there. That's why resort fees are going up. People misunderstand resort fees. And believe me, I'm very anti them. And I think they're, they're a scam. And they're misleading on purpose. But they're, they're, it's not the hotel charging you fees for things you don't need. That's just the excuse they give for charging it. What they're really doing is lopping off that amount from the hotel price so they can falsely list the, the hotel as being cheaper than it really is. So a $165 hotel room becomes advertised as a $120 hotel room plus a $45 resort fee. So what they're doing is, is they're doing deceptive advertising. That's what it is. Resort fees are all about deceptive advertising. That's it. Nothing more than that. But that's the only way it's going to stop is if this practice is made illegal, which it eventually will. It will eventually be illegal, but it, it hasn't yet. There's been talk of making it illegal, but it, it just hasn't happened. That's the only way that's going to stop. But people are upset about it. People hate it. Especially because people misunderstand it. I think people would actually be happier if they knew the truth. That it's just a way to show up better in the search engines. Uh, that sucks too, but, but I, I, people are really angry because they feel like they're being forced to pay fees for things they don't want. So they go, what's this $45 resort fee? Well, it's it's for local phone calls. I go, well, who makes local phone calls in the hotel room anymore? Well, it's it's for use of the, of the spa. Well, I don't use the spa. It's for use of parking. Well, I don't have a car. Or, or, there, or there's a separate parking fee. It's not for parking anymore. Like, you know, like everything that's listed they get from it, they go, well, I don't use these things. I don't want these things. I, how about I just don't pay the fee and I'll get these things? Nope, you have to pay the fee. People get really mad. They're used to it by now, but they're still pissed. They've got to pay for parking too. It gets people pissed off because they they go believing the price is a certain price, and then they get there and it's way more, and they, and they feel like they were cheated. So that actually drives people away. That that leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. I used to say this about the World Series of Poker. They make so much money. I found it outrageous how much they would charge for things like a bottle of Gatorade, like the six dollar bottle of Gatorade. I thought was insane. 
Why charge that? Why not? Why not give? Why leave that as a memory of some of a recreational player that comes there to play? Why, why try to squeeze every dollar out of these players? Why not sell it to them for something reasonable, for like what convenience store prices would be? You know, charge them two bucks for the bottle instead of six. You're not going to make a lot of money. You're not going to lose money. It's it's fine. Like that, that's where it should stop. So the nickel and diamond culture is a mistake. A lot of it has become like a vicious cycle. The resort fee thing won't end until laws prevent it. But I agree with Jeff Wang that this type of thing is pissing people off and that the hotel is getting too expensive and pricing at the lower end of the market may be driving some people away. But the whole gaming part, totally disagree. And so I brought it up on Twitter. There's a long discussion back and forth now. I'm involved. Steve Ruddock's involved. Um, a bunch of other people joined in. And most of the people agree with me. John Mahaffey's involved. So, And I, I can tell Jeff is getting annoyed. I don't really know Jeff Wang. I, I guess he's a poker player. He plays PLO. I, 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 I don't know the guy. And he, if you want to find him on Twitter, he's at Rival School X. Exactly the sounds at Rival School X. But he seems kind of annoyed because when he first wrote the article, he got all this praise for it. Like, oh wow, Jeff, this is a great article. Wow, you really hit on all the great points here. And then I said, well, actually, I disagree with this. And then people jumped in agreeing with me. So he's kind of pissed because he really thought he had it down there. He really thought he laid it all out and told it like it really was. And then I showed up and go, no, actually, you're wrong about this thing. And then, and then others who, who have respect, like 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 Steve Ruddock and, and John Mahaffey. I mean, these are respected journalists in Vegas. Steve Ruddock, I don't think he lives in Vegas, but he writes about Vegas. So these are respected journalists, and they, they jumped in on my side on this. So it, I think Jeff Wang's a little bit annoyed with me. It, it's been a reasonable exchange. Nobody's insulted each other. Nobody's... Uh, uh, giving each other a hard time personally, but he seems a little bit annoyed. Okay, so I'm going to move on. Oh, and Jeff, before we leave real quick, so do you think as far as pricing where it is now, excuse me, do you think it's leveled off for a while? I mean, I don't want to say peaks. I know it's eventually going to go up. Because I think it is genius what they're doing with all these huge names like Lady Gaga and stuff doing residencies in Vegas. They, every time the Knights plays, you see just groups of people from that city coming. The Raiders are going to be huge. And it's just like that new clientele. Yeah, they're constantly in adjustment. Uh I don't know where the prices are going to go, but basically as high as they can get away with charging. And they're constantly adjusting things. Like you said, like the, the big stars now taking residency there has become a big thing over the years. And it's happening more and more. And as you mentioned, the sports teams, which may start attracting fans of these uh, visiting teams. And they're coming. Yeah, and how great is it for sorry for the Lady Gaga's and stuff? They don't have to like go city to city on the plane. They go to one place, and everybody will come to Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And I just think that's going to be huge. 
Yeah, so they're they're coming up with and it's convention the, the big expansion of the conventions. They they're trying to bring in uh, as many people as possible, bring in people for reasons they didn't come before, and then hoping to fill up hotel rooms and charge higher and higher prices. I mean, I watch now that I don't get comp rooms anymore for the most part. I got to pay like everybody else, and and I I look, and it's funny how the prices jump all around. That are adjusted by computer based upon the demand. And it's funny how quickly they jump back and forth. I'll see it go way down, then way up, then way down, way up, like over and over and over for the same weekend. And that's the computer kind of figuring out what it thinks it can get away with charging. So I don't think there's any limit to this. I, I th- and I don't know which way it's going to go. It's it's possible that uh, there there will be some kind of you know Vegas type recession and that it'll. Yeah, they'll have to go a little cheaper for a while, or maybe oversaturation of the market with hotel rooms. Uh, there's a lot of factors that come into it. So I can't predict where that's going to go, but but they're constantly making adjustments, and that's that's what the whole moving toward less gambling dependence is about. And that's there. Vegas is less gambling dependent now for survival of the city than ever. Than ever, it's never been less gambling dependent than it is right now, and it's getting less and less every year. Yeah, and all the plans are to continue down that road. Yeah, so so the, and and, and the, but, the players they still want are the ones that are uh, just going to hand the money, pretty much. Right, and they don't even look at it like players; they just look at it like people, and then a percentage of which will gamble, so you can just get more of them. Yeah, and they're probably people that don't know what they're doing. And and it sucks because people who do know what they're doing, people who did enjoy the games, even if, if they ha- they were negative expectation, but they weren't big negative expectations. People who enjoyed that and are watching it worsen and and, dis- and a lot of their favorite things disappearing, it's it's frustrating. But that's, that's for sure. They just don't see that as their customer anymore. Yeah, it's 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 evolved, yeah. and that's and also I should mention that uh, I think it was John Mahaffey brought it up in the discussion that. Some casinos actually did try to bring back high-value games. Still negative expectation, but kind of back to the old-school type of games, and it flopped. Nobody wanted it. It's not that people rejected it. It's that people didn't want to go out of their way for it. People weren't like, oh, I'm going to go to this casino now because they have 3-2 to blackjack. No. You'll have a few people who do, but most don't. And, and the real problem is if you offer those games, you're not going to make much from each customer and especially the type of customer that seeks them out is usually the one that's going to know how to play basic strategy or better. And so, at least in the old days, you had a mixture. You had a mixture of perfect basic strategy players. You had card counters on, the, you know, all those on the top, and then you had you had some players who weren't as good, who didn't play basic strategy well, who who did stupid things. Not as many as you have now, but but you you did have a mixture. Now the, the only people that are going to flock to three to two blackjack tables are ones who know blackjack well enough to flock to three to two tables. So, unfortunately, offering those games gets exactly the customers you don't want as a casino owner. I, I see why they're doing it. I- For sure. And it will be interesting, too, when that place opens across the street from the Wynn, where they're kind of opening up a whole new area for people to go. There are just some creative things they'll be able to do to get people. You know, and I don't know if Better Games is part of it. You know, maybe it's a piece of it, but it's like this whole section that's kind of not downtown, not the strip, but the middle, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I wonder but if anyway, that's to get to I extended it. the session. I don't want anybody to kill me because you're just about to move on. So yeah. I just want to say that. <laughs> All right, what's that clanging in the background? You're clanging, clanging with pats. Uh, with that, uh, no, that was sorry. I'm, the herbal tea is in process. Oh, it's herbal tea. Okay, I thought you were making eggs or something at this time of night. Clang, clang, clang. Okay, let's see what the next topic is. You, you, you guys can go take a look, by the way, at my Twitter. You can see the whole discussion back and forth. Uh, from JSTAT in the chat, the 90s was the golden age of blackjack in Las Vegas with the explosion of new casinos then. Yeah, I know. He uh, he says it was heaven he's describing some of the games. I, trust me, Jay said, I know, and not for the reason I wish I knew. I was 21 in 1993. Didn't have a big bankroll then, I'll admit. I, I didn't have much money to sink into it, but uh, uh, I wish I had gotten into blackjack then. But I did not start card counting in blackjack until late 2000, and by then it was already starting to go the wrong way. So I, I blew I blew those important seven years when blackjack was really good in Vegas, and I regret it. Uh, he says that uh, there were sixty single deckers in Harris and Harvey's, presumably he lives, yeah in Lake Tahoe, five dollar minimum in the nineties. Reno was all single decks. I got kicked in Reno casinos real fast in like the mid two thousands, real fast. The horseshoe was awesome. Uh. Jay Stat says March second is National Blackjack Day because it's three two, you know, like three to two. Say no to six to five blackjack. I don't even know about that. That's funny. I I did see some shirts uh, th- that they were selling. I forget who was selling it. You could buy some shirts online. They were actually the it says six six colon five with a circle and a cross out of, through it. That that was funny too. Maybe I'll buy one of those and wear it at uh, the World Series. I, I should buy some shirts like that. Just little. Insider references like this that only certain people will get. Okay, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text that same phone number. Let's see what texts we've received tonight. Uh, from the 505, I was checking into the plaza last summer, and this guy who was handicapped could not understand the resort fees. He argued that his daughter already paid already paid. Little did he know the plaza doesn't tell you the fees till you show up. They give you an estimate you can't prepay. He owed another 160 in fees. I, I've watched a lot of these arguments. Not as many now because people are used to them, but I watched when they were not uh, as established. I watched a lot of angry arguments about resort fees. I, I felt bad for the front desk staff. They really were they were taking a lot of uh, beating. In the 507, they said Jeff Boski only has 17,000 YouTube subscribers. Yeah, but he had 22,000 views on that video in a week, unless he's view-botting, but it's still you know, 17,000. It's not huge, but for poker, which is a small community, that's still pretty good. And the 916. Druff, the good rumor I heard about Monday Night Football was that it was just a spillover day to accommodate the games that couldn't be played uh, on Sunday. Never heard it was recoup Sunday betting fees. And the 480... Virginia Assembly passed a bill to allow locales to have a casino if it passes a local referendum. These locales include Bristol, Danville, Portsmouth, possibly Richmond as well. It's possible they will pass local voting and are, as are all, all are technically Democrat, more liberal locales about uh, a casino in uh, Virginia, which uh, I didn't know if there were any there or not. I don't know the area very well. For the 470, 
I watched live at the bike. If a player wins 250K, do they take the whole 250K home and report it later to the IRS, or does the casino take a tax cut up front? No, for poker, they just cash you out. Uh, the only tournaments they will uh, report. They never take they never take any uh, taxes out for Americans, even at tournaments. Um, they will have to issue a form. If you win 250K but don't cash it out, just convert it to casino chips and put it in your box or something, they, they won't report anything. But if you uh, cash anything out above uh, 10K, they will report you through the uh, CTR, the cash uh, transaction report form that they're required to by law. Commerce, they don't 1099 you. They just no, no. They only they only and they only give you the W2G for tournament wins. Uh, so the commerce I've mentioned before they they used to be super lax about cashing out. Um, you could go to commerce with and you could at commerce you could bring ninety nine hundred dollars up to the cage. Get ninety nine hundred cash, and then walk to another part of the cage and get another ninety nine hundred. Not, I'm not saying I've done this. I'm just saying I. You could do this, okay? Back then, uh, all the way up to a few years ago, and they didn't keep track of anything. They were very, very lax about keeping track of buy ins and cash outs. Very much in violation of the law. I'm surprised it took this long, but. Finally, they something must have come down on them because now they're super anal about it. If you Bring up anything like a thousand or more, you know, like is it to cash out. They they want your ID. So they've they've gotten they went from like super lax to fairly hard line at commerce. Like a, it used to be that uh, commerce just pretty much let you do anything beyond cashing ten thousand or more at one time. Uh, and uh, Bellagio, as long as you kept it under five thousand, they didn't give you a hard time. But Bellagio is still pretty much the same as that, last I saw. I think they got a little tighter on it, but uh, like you could still easily cash out like 2K, and they don't give you, they don't ask for anything. But uh, at Commerce, they, they I, I've never cashed out there for anything above a thousand where they don't ask me for my player's card or my ID. Okay, let's move on here. Let's move on to the next topic. Which is this is going to be a very casino heavy show, like, like every every topic we've had is about casinos so far. I just realized we haven't talked about poker at all. We've not talked about poker at all, except for the Jeff Bosky thing, which is kind of about poker. It's the only poker topic we've had, and and uh, except for a poker stars topic at the very end, there's no other poker topics. This is probably the least poker we've ever discussed on the show. Very casino heavy. Too bad Brandon's not here. He would have liked this. Brandon likes the casino topics. Okay, so Nevada Gaming has fined the win a record amount. A a big amount of money has been fined to the win over their uh, sexual harassment issues with Steve Wynn. Very high amount. The win Las Vegas was fined one hundred billion dollars. Twenty million dollars. Twenty million dollars fine for the win. This was handed down 
on Tuesday of this week. Nevada Gaming Control Board fined Wind Resorts Limited $20 million, which is a record fine, for failing to investigate the Wind's misconduct. And they've been going back and forth for over a year about this. Regulators spent over a year investigating the company and how they handled the allegations of Steve Wynn sexually harassing women at the company. This uh, dwarfs the second largest fine now ever handed out by the Nevada Gaming Control Board, which was $5.5 million in 2014 against Cantor Gaming. Uh, believe it or not, according to the Associated Press, some people on the Gaming Commission actually wanted the fine to be bigger. <laughs> they thought $20 million wasn't enough. They wanted to actually fine them more. Commissioner Philip Pro, that sounds like a fake name, Philip Pro. The PRO. Philip Pro is his name. He said it's not about one man, it's about a failure of corporate culture to effectively govern itself as it should. They've also acknowledged that the culture of the company has since changed. Wynn is no longer the CEO. And there's a bunch of new board members, including three female board members. And the board is now half female. The chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission said that uh, the reason the fine was so high is that they were trying to send a message. They said it needs to move needles here. It needs to ring across the entire country. They're basically saying, uh, notice to all perverted CEOs and other upper management types at casinos, stop sexually harassing women or there's going to be massive, massive fines. That, that's the message they're trying to get across here. There are still lawsuits against Steve Wynn that are pending. And uh, then there's the Massachusetts issue. Wynn, before all this, got approved for the only casino in the Boston area. Very, very lucrative license. Imagine being the only casino in the Boston area. The Wynn Resorts Encore Boston Harbor Project, what it's called. And it's still, so they were deciding what they're going to do about that. And that's still up in the air. But uh, they may end up losing their license over this. And uh, there was also a lawsuit involving this whole thing in Massachusetts as well. But uh, this lawsuit actually had to do with, with the license and then who will get to decide what is going to happen. So we will see what ends up happening with all that. Not much more to say. We've talked about Steve Wynn before and all the stuff he did. There, there was a different culture for many years up until 2017, which allowed a lot of these guys to just basically do what they wanted and, and get away with it. And I'm not defending it. It wasn't right. It shouldn't have been happening. 
but a lot of these guys did this stuff, and they just figured that's just something you can do and get away with when you're, you're high up in the company. Like, hey, I'm, I'm the CEO, or hey, I'm very high in upper management. You know, what, what are they going to do about it? And it, it all started with Harvey Weinstein. And then that really changed the culture everywhere. And now some men are having to answer for some things they did a long time ago. Like in Steve Wynn's case, a lot of the allegations were from back in 2005. But it was still him. And it's not like he was a kid back then. It was still basically the same guy. So I'm not saying I feel bad for him. But yeah, things are changing. And... Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, provided the allegations are true, and provided that it's handled in a way to where false allegations are able to be figured out, and that it's not not just an instant assumption of guilt. Then I'm fine with it. I I don't feel that CEOs should have the ability to just sexually harass women and get away with it. You do have to watch out. There are people who lie, unfortunately. There are people who fake being a victim for various reasons. Most don't. Most are telling the truth. There are some who aren't. You have to... I'd say the best attitude to take with this type of thing is to trust but verify. Like at first, mostly believe the accusation, but at the same time, leave an open mind that you want to look at the details and make an intelligent decision as to whether the the person is likely telling the truth. Usually when these come down, there's a reason for it. Usually it really has happened. That's why we've seen very few cases, very few high-profile cases where someone is accused of sexual impropriety and it turns out that they're falsely accused. Like, like think of all the cases we've seen since 2017. Like, can you even think of one that turned out to be false? So it usually is true. But there still is a potential for false accusations to be made, and for that reason you have to look at everything and and come up with a common-sense conclusion of whether these men really did what they were accused of doing. And you also have to look at the woman and make sure that she is lobbying the accusation from a real point of victimization. While most women are horrified when they're boss or someone above their boss uh, sexually harasses them and they feel powerless to do anything and rightfully so there have been the women who have known to quote sleep their way to the top where they are willing to do it if this gets them ahead in their career and then when things don't work out then they can claim sexual harassment that's not fair if 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 they use that as a way to advance they can't cry foul later on the other hand, if they're receiving unwelcome advances that they just don't want at all and are disgusted by, then something should happen to the men who are doing that. And there's never an excuse to do it. And you know, I don't believe that anybody should ever make any kind of sexual advances or make anyone feel uncomfortable in that way unless they're, you know, they, they shouldn't make such advances unless they're pretty sure it's going to be welcomed. And that's the way I have always personally operated. 
You won't, you won't find one woman anywhere in this world that could honestly tell you that I have ever made sexual advances towards them when they weren't interested. Because I, I would only do this when I'd be pretty sure that, that they would want me to. And if I wasn't sure either way, I just wouldn't do it. And I was always very mindful of that because I've thought about, like, you know, uh, it's how would I feel if I were a woman and some guy was making those type of adv- advances on me and I wasn't interested? Like, I would be very, very uncomfortable and, and unnerving. So I wouldn't want to put someone in that position myself. And that's why I, I've always approached women in that way in a very respectful fashion. And, and only done what I really honestly think they would want me to do. And if I would think they wouldn't want me to do, then I wouldn't even try. Moving on here. Major League Baseball has begun spring training. I can't really get excited about spring training games. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excited it's here because I, I miss baseball when it's not going. I'm a big baseball fan. That's the sport I like best. Sport I've always liked best. But the problem with spring training is you go look at the box scores of the games and like it's it's really a bunch of players that are never going to make the team. It's a bunch of no-name minor league players that not only aren't going to be on the team this year but probably won't ever be in the majors. And the players you do know play like one inning or two innings. It's just, it's really like nobodies versus nobodies. It's just not very exciting to watch or even care about the results too much. Like, like do I really care if a team of scrubs that are not going to make the Dodgers but are playing for the Dodgers in spring training beat the Colorado Rockies, same group of scrubs on their end, eight to seven? Do I care? No. Is it going to have any implication on this upcoming regular season? No. So, I don't pay that much attention to spring training. Uh, it is sometimes interesting to see the players you do expect to play if they're having a good spring or a bad spring. Sometimes that means something, sometimes it doesn't. But, um, like Matt Kemp, for example, last year, when he had his surprising first half with the Dodgers and played like the old Matt Kemp, he had a strong spring, too. And I was watching him crush the ball in the spring, and I said, I, I think I think Matt Kemp's going to do something this year. Even you know, Don't sell him short. I think he's going to be useful for the Dodgers. And he was for the first half, very much. He made the All-Star team. So that, in that sense, Major League Baseball could be interesting in spring training. But I, I still only have moderate interest at this point. But anyway, this isn't a baseball talk. So don't don't tune me out just yet. Don't skip to the next topic yet. This isn't really sports talk. This is talk about Major League Baseball attempting to pressure U.S. casinos to not take sports bets on spring training games. Now, why don't they want that? Why don't they want people betting on spring training games? They're okay with people betting on regular season games that actually mean something and on playoff games, which mean a whole lot. So why do they give a crap if meaningless spring training games that don't go into any kind of official records, why do they care if there's betting 
on those? Well, I'd imagine they'd be very easy to fix. That's that's the reason. Yes. Major League Baseball is claiming that the multi-state betting, referring to the fact that there can be betting in states other than Nevada now, threatens the integrity of the spring training games. And they've asked several states to not allow betting on spring training games. They believe that the spring training games are more subject to tampering because minor leaguers don't make very much money. Many of them will never make the majors that you see in these spring training games, as I just mentioned. And therefore, these players are easier to bribe to fix games than existing Major League Baseball stars who make so much money that there's no way they would risk their career on that. However, I'll tell you why I disagree. First of all, there's very unpredictable usage of these players in the game. So these players play one inning, two innings, how much impact can they really make? Uh, also, a lot of these players have their whole careers ahead of them and are not just resigning themselves to the fact that they're not going to make it. Many won't make it, but they're, they're playing because they believe they have a chance to make it and make the big money one day. And there are players who are unheralded that end up very much outdoing what was expected to them. The Dodgers even have some in recent years. Max Muncy in 2018, Chris Taylor in 2017. Total nobodies in the game that indeed had a bad start in, in Major League Baseball, barely even made Major League Baseball to begin with, and then had these big breakout years where they were important players on, on uh, high-profile teams. So these these minor leaguers, even ones that aren't well-regarded, they look at players like that and say, okay, well, yeah, I'm not one of the top prospects listed, but you know, neither was Chris Taylor, neither was Max Muncy. Look where they are. Maybe I can be the next one of them. So these players don't want to throw away that potential to fix spring training games. I just don't think they do. Is it impossible to happen? No. But still, they don't have that much impact. They're not going to play that long in the game. There's also no evidence of any recent game fixing in previous seasons where sports betting was allowed in Nevada on spring training games. The only difference this year is there's multi-states involved. That's the difference. It's not like this is the first year of spring training betting. Major League Baseball believes that being in multiple states is the problem. They think that uh, this gives out more opportunities for organized crime in other places besides Las Vegas to get their hand in this. A statement from the league says, Spring training games are exhibition contests in which the primary focus of the clubs and players is to prepare for the coming season rather than to win games or perform at maximum effort on every single play. These games are not conducive to betting and carry heightened integrity risks, and states should not permit bookmakers to offer bets on them. Limited and historically in-person betting on spring training in one state did not pose nearly the same integrity risks that widespread betting on spring training in multiple states will pose. Well, that's not a very good argument. Now, if they could say, we already have a big problem with game fixing when it's only in Nevada, it's only going to get worse in multiple states, then I'd be on board. But 
they're they're saying eh, you know it worked out in Nevada, but now that we're on multiple states, now it's going to be a problem. I don't believe that. Now, what are the states saying about this? Because Major League Baseball can't control it; it's not their decision. So they asked the Nevada Gaming Control Board, "Can you stop this? Can you prohibit the betting on spring training games?" in Nevada casinos in 2019, and the Nevada Gaming Control Board's response was <laughs> basically that. They, they, they laughed them out of the room. So, it's continuing. It's, it's still happening. The Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board told ESPN that it received a request, the same one from Major League Baseball, to prohibit wagering on the spring training games. And they actually said, oh, okay, fine. So they decided they were going to examine the concerns. They're not outright banning it, but they've asked their sports betting operators not to offer them at the moment. The Mississippi Gaming Commission said that they received a similar letter, and they're considering the issue, though I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know if they've temporarily stopped it or not. And I haven't read about any other states. Right now, the only one that seems to have really gone along with it, and only maybe temporarily, is Pennsylvania. I think it's stupid. Not only that, but I think any like major action on these games would be noticeable because there's just not a lot of betting on them. I, I don't think organized crime would waste its time with this. I think I think these are kind of antiquated concerns. A long time ago, when players didn't make much money, and there was a lot more, a lot more reason for them to throw games for organized crime. Nowadays, even the minor leaguers they they have dreams of making you know, getting. $100 million contracts one day. I just don't see it happening. Okay, so moving on here. Damn it, I lost my agenda. Why is why can't I ever get through a show without losing the agenda? Why? Why not once? Why not once? Well, speaking of organized crime, Paul Fua, an alleged organized crime figure, has succeeded again in evading consequences for allegedly running an illegal sports betting operation. Uh, Paul Fua, by the way, is probably the one who is backing Tom Dwan in Macau to play those Nosebleed State games. I know they were close, those two. And uh, that's that's why there were these jokes about Tom Dwan being chained up somewhere in between games. But anyway, Paul Fu, if you remember, in 2014, was arrested for running a sports betting operation from luxury villas at Caesars Palace. 
The case was eventually thrown out, mainly because of the way they obtained the evidence. Was they they disrupted his internet service there. Then he called up and said, hey, my internet doesn't work. And then they sent FBI agents to bug the place who pretended to be cable repairmen. And that it was ruled that that wasn't uh, a legal way to gather evidence without a warrant. So he got out of it in the United States. They even confiscated his, his private jet, which he got back. But we already talked about this years ago. So why are we talking about this again today in 2019? Well, because right before this all occurred, Paul Fua and 20 other people were arrested on June 19th, 2014 at the Wynn Macau. Again, for operating an illegal bookmaking operation. It was alleged that in just 12 days, from June 7th to June 19th, 2014, Paul Fua took 147.7 million U.S. dollars in wagers, mostly on World Cup games. That's also what he was alleged to be taking wagers on in Caesar's Palace. They also found that there was some sort of gambling enterprise going on in these rooms at the Wynn. But I guess they didn't get enough to really charge him on that. Paul Fua was believed to be the mastermind of everything going on. And in fact, one of the rooms that was involved, one of the hotel rooms at the Wynn, was actually rented by Fua for several years. Imagine having a hotel room for years. But he did. Now, Paul Fua had a big presence in Macau. He uh, he was a big fixture in those nosebleed sakes games that would go on there. Phil Ivey was in these games. Tom Dwan was in these games. There were high-stakes poker pros who traveled to Macau and spent most of their time there playing these super, super high-limit games where pots would be sometimes uh, seven figures in U.S. dollars. Crazy stuff. But I guess the real action there, for the most part, centered on Paul Fua himself and his son. Sometimes there would be other whales there. But... uh, Since Fua got in trouble in 2014 in Macau over this, uh, the games died. Because uh, I I guess he was the fish there. I guess without him there, the games didn't even go, and other fish didn't come play as much either. So Macau, he was charged there. This is separate from the U.S. case. And what happened was after he got arrested in in, uh, Macau, then he went to Las Vegas and ran basically the same operation in in Caesar's Palace. So what happened was, uh, according to the judge, the prosecutor's failed to offer proof 
that that uh, Fua or his accomplices were accepting wagers of the World Cup ma- matches or processing them on behalf of, of, of betters. Even though uh, it seemed like uh, a lot of this had to do with uh, an online site that he was running, which was called uh, IBC Bet and then later called uh, Max Bet. So they, I guess they did have a lot of evidence, though. They had uh, laptops, betting slips, cell phones. But uh, they did not have names of the people betting. And there just wasn't enough to co- connect direct bettors to these bets. So even they could see it, it was clear bets were being placed, but they couldn't find strong enough evidence to really prove it. The judge said, if a team won a match, how would the group attribute the earnings without a name? The court can't make any connection. There's a lack of connecting elements. There was some allegation that this was kind of rigged, that uh, the Macau authorities basically went through the motions to pretend that they were clamping down on this, but were never really wanting to convict Fua of anything. And that they were hoping that uh, he would just pay a fine and it would be done. It's not clear if a fine was ever paid, but that was a suspicion that they weren't ever really trying to win this case against him. Nevertheless, they did not win the case. And that was that. And the only real lasting impact here is that... uh, Fua seems to be done with these Macau games and pretty much has been for five years, apparently, for the most part. And there's also a rumor that uh, he's not allowed in Macau anymore. So that has not been confirmed. A little interesting side note to all of this. Paul Fua's nationality is Malaysian. But he has some diplomatic immunity, believe it or not. So he actually purchased a diplomatic immunity. I've never heard of this before. But but he did. A very small microstate called San Marino. Probably haven't even heard of it. Have you heard of San Marino... Uh, in Europe, Trader Risky? I have not. I hadn't heard of it either. Uh, San Marino is located, uh, it, it looks like it's in Italy, but it's a tiny thing by itself. It's described online as uh, San Marino is a mountainous microstate surrounded by north central Italy. Among the world's oldest republic, it retains most of its, much of its historic architecture. It really looks like it's just is Italy, but it isn't. Apparently, San Marino is a separate thing. It's uh, officially the Republic of San Marino. And Fua apparently bought diplomatic immunity for them. It's so tiny. It's got the whole 
place has a population of uh, 33,000 people, which is smaller than a lot of cities. And uh, because it's considered uh, an independent republic, they can qualify for diplomatic immunity, apparently. That's amazing. So he That's went, a genius move. So he, bought, he, he paid for diplomatic immunity there. That's funny. I mean, they think of everything, these criminals. So that, that also made it tougher to prosecute him. Kind of reminds me of Lethal Weapon 2. The bad guy had diplomatic immunity. Uh, that's that's pretty much it. So Fua gets away with it again. Paul Fua, for whatever reason, was very, very big on short deck poker, which which is finally catching on now. For years, he was pushing short deck poker, and and nobody was caring. He had Tom Dwan made this very he and Tom Dwan made this very awkward video introducing short deck poker. It kind of looked from that video like Tom Dwan was a slave there. <laughs> he probably wasn't, but it kind of looked like that from the video too. But uh, yeah, Paul Fua pressured Tom Dwan into making this short deck poker tutorial video and Paul Fu is in the video too. And finally, this is catching on. There's going to be a short deck event for the first time ever at the World Series of Poker. For those of you who don't know what that is, we've talked about it before here, that's poker where the twos through fives are removed from the deck. And then there's some rule changes in the ranks of hands. But it really changes everything. You may think that doesn't matter much, but it really changes everything. Because it becomes like much easier to make straights. And uh, it, it really just entirely changes the game. Because uh, 16 cards are out of the deck. So draws hit a lot more often. And made hands don't hold up as well. And of course, what are were once middle pocket pairs or middle high pocket pairs aren't that good anymore, just because they're not as high because <laughs> the bottom cards are gone. Pocket nines are like a low pair now. But yeah, it finally got going. Paul Fua got his wish. Short deck poker is getting going. I, I still don't know why they don't hold, hold a short deck fifteen hundred event. At the World Series. I bet that would get a lot of people. It's only a 10K, though. Big mistake. All right, final topic. Final topic. Again, show running around uh, four hours. It'll be a little more than four hours by the time we're done. The Poker Stars topic is our last one. Poker Stars has finally decided to clamp down on seating scripts and hand range charts. A seating script is something that will place you at a table immediately a lot faster than you could ever click yourself. It's an automated program which basically moves the mouse for you and clicks the buttons for you to sit you at a table where you want to be. So if there's a fish there, if a fish sits down at a new table, you don't have to race to get over there. The 
Fish will be recognized by the software and will seat you immediately to the fish's left. So people have been using them on poker stars. And I, I always thought these were very unethical. These should have never been allowed. I'm surprised that it's gone on this long. But everybody should have the same opportunity to go sit in good games. There shouldn't be automated scripts that give some people a, a totally unfair advantage over those who don't use them. Severin Rasset, PokerStars Director of Innovation and Poker Operations, said there are tools that provide their users and uh, with sometimes small and other times clear advantages over others, undermining the spirit of the game. They are trying to establish what they call a safe and fair environment for all the users and provide a clear and unambiguous picture of the additional resources available to them. So they have banned seating scripts and they've also banned, more controversially, the hand range tools. The hand range tools are like automated reference materials that give you advice on whether to play hands or not pre-flop. So it would take into account the stack sizes and uh, these weren't bots because they didn't make intelligent decisions like based upon the player or based upon the gameplay but it, it would based on situations so this would also give you information on when you should uh, raise or uh, or fold Re-raise, go all in, things like that, based upon uh, stack sizes, if it's a tournament, uh, where in the tournament you are, uh, the strength of your hand, position of the person going all in, things like that. The problem is these weren't just simple little charts. These were programs that would, uh, if you were to print out the chart, probably take up uh, five football fields. So people would say they kind of acted like bots in a way. If it's something you couldn't just look up using a normal reference material, and it's something that uses such a massive store of data to advise you of what to do, that's more of a bot. And I have to agree. We talked about this on another show, that this should not be allowed. Poker stars used to evaluate on a case-by-case basis if they'd allow certain tools to be used. Now they're just prohibiting things like this. So they said that their new policy will prohibit the the use of automated or semi-automated poker reference materials while the PokerStars client is open. They said, we do not wish for players to be supplied with in-depth reference material following it blindly while playing and artificially boosting their performance. Broadly speaking, reference material can only be used for, for basic hand decisions like unopened pot and pre-flop decisions rather than as a live virtual decision maker. So they said that they would allow people to have starting hand charts that would include things like uh, raise, raise or fold, or fold in unopened pots, assuming that uh, no player has entered the pot yet, but that beyond that they don't want anything. They said all material 
must be able to be converted to a maximum of nine 13 by 13 charts. So what they're basically saying is uh, if you couldn't print this out in, in uh, nine pages at most, you can't use it. It's not clear how they will be able to enforce all of this, especially if people use charts on other computers. Then they won't be able to see anything. But at least these programs will be unable to uh, interact with a client of PokerStars directly that uh, if they're still used, people would have to manually input the data if there are like another system. So this is what's still allowed there when the PokerStars poker client is open. Reference material that it provides advice beyond... Um, or sorry, this is what's not allowed, not what's allowed. This is what that you can't have there. Reference material that provides advice beyond a basic level, such as the large collection of tables offering uh, recommendations beyond where wh- whether to play certain hands or not in open pots. Number two, tools or services designed specifically to ease re- referral or reference material. Three, tools of services, tools or services that compute advanced equity calculations, such as range versus range simulators, independent chip model, or Nash equilibrium-based programs. So basically, they're saying if, you, if it's not something simple, you could just fit on a paper chart without taking up too much room. You can't use it. I think this is a good idea. Some people on, on Poker Fraud Alert, when this was posted, disagree and say it's too hard to police. People could have this open on other computers. It's not perfect, okay? They're, they're not going to be able to completely eliminate this stuff, but just you can't just allow it. You've got to at least make it tougher for the people using these things to use them and, and, and have these people engaging in some kind of risk or at least a lot of hassle to use them rather than just saying, yeah, it's okay, fine. The seating scripts is a no-brainer. There's no chance. Those should, those should have been done away with years ago. I heard about this years ago. I don't know why it's only now they're doing away with it. But even these these automated reference tools. It is kind of like bots. It's not quite as bad as a full bot, but it's uh, it's close enough. All real decisions should be made based upon what you can tell with your own mind. I've never liked these HUDs and other tools that allow people to data mine and make decisions based upon that. It's not fair. It's, 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 it changes poker from human versus human to human versus computer and human. That's not fair. Very basic charts that help beginners, fine. Someone wants to have something that explains, uh, you know, you. It's it's you know that's okay to open for a raise with, uh, you know, say. Ten seven suited or better from a certain position, if nobody's come in yet, fine. That's pretty basic stuff. That's not going to help anybody be a winner. It'll help fish from losing as much, but it's a, it, it's not going to be useful for the advanced player. But these very complicated reference materials that are giving you advice of what to do based upon uh, very deep mathematical analysis that only a computer could do, that shouldn't be allowed. The reason people have these open is because they can't make these calculations themselves on the fly. 
So good. I, I'm all for the best player winning, but not the best player with the best, not the player with the best tools winning. That's not fair. And just because something can't be completely policed doesn't mean there shouldn't be a policy against it. We have that all the time with, with regular laws in our society. A lot of things that are illegal are difficult to catch, or in many cases only a small percentage gets caught, but you still have to have the law in the books if it's wrong. You can't just say, oh, it's going to be hard to catch people, so screw it, it'll just be legal. That's not, that's not the right approach. So good for poker stars on this one. Now, they're not doing this to be good citizens. They're doing this because they want the fish to survive longer. This is, uh, this is part of their continued war on pros. They're trying to make the fish last longer, and this makes it tougher for the pros to beat them as handily as they have been. That's the reason they're doing it. Don't, don't give poker stars a hand for this one. They're really doing this uh, out of greed, out of self-interest. But they happen to be backing into doing the right thing. This is one of those cases where you, you're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. That, my friends, is it. I thought we were going to get a bad guy call tonight. He said in the thread he was going to call. He promised he wasn't drinking. I didn't believe that. Josie showed up. You know, Josie, who he used to date a long time ago. They've had kind of a strange friendship, not friendship ever since. She hadn't posted on the site in a long time, but she appeared. She said said she's going to be listening. And I said, I'd love for them both to call up together, but neither of them called. We didn't get we didn't get any calls tonight. Big zero on calls. Kind of disappointing. But calls or no calls, uh, the show will go on. The ratings weren't bad. I looked at the ratings. I just people didn't want to interact with calls. I got texts. I got chat room comments. I just didn't get calls. Trader Risky, are you still with us? Did you knock out a while ago? I have a feeling he's gone. I should come up with the average amount of time from when he starts the tea to when he's out. Like I, I don't remember if he's ever started the tea and lasted like twenty-five minutes. I don't think he has. I think when he started, the tea, once he starts the tea, at most you're getting twenty-five minutes out of him, usually less. I think we lost him a while ago. I forgot the last thing he said. Forgot the last time we heard from him. But he's not here anymore. Just drop him. Just gone. Just me now. Okay, well, before I shut it down, if anybody wants to say anything in the chat room or text me something, I will respond. I just got a message in the chat room from John Commode. One of, he's actually one of our older listeners, too. He says, Druff been dozing off at times, but do you know this Vegas illusionist who just got 20 years Jan Roven. Uh, let me see here. I hate that you're making me do another topic, but okay. Ex-Vegas headliner faints at 20-year sentence in porn case. Oh, i got to read this now. This is from Yahoo. Uh, he's from Germany. His name's John Roven. John Roven Fuchtener. He's 40 years old. It says he stiffened and fell backward over his chair 
after U.S. District Judge Gloria Navarro rejected his apology in his attempt to say he deserved no gratification from thousands of pornographic videos and images the FBI found in password-protected files on nine computers at a, at a home dubbed, quote, the Fun House. Ugh. And he, I guess he had a sip of water and kind of uh, got back up. I don't think he ever lost consciousness, but uh, he also had to pay an additional 70000 in restitution. I guess this is something to do with child porn. It is, yeah. He was, he was sentenced to 20 years plus $500,000 fine. The judge said this is not acceptable here or in Germany or anywhere, not just children having sex, but sadistic, violent acts. Uh, the prosecutor showed heart-wrenching screams and whimpers of children forced into sex with adults on files she viewed preparing the criminal case. Federal parole and probation officials asked for 23 years and prosecutors asked for 30 years. He'll probably be deported by the time he gets out of prison. He actually admitted that he had a porn collection like this, but he blamed it on boredom, a meth habit, and uh, people that he surrounded himself with between his six shows a week at the Tropicana Resort in Vegas. By the way... um, I guess this is probably porn, child porn of boys because uh, he's gay. He was married to Frank Dietmar Alfter. And I guess his husband Frank traveled around the world. The arrest occurred in March 2016. How come I didn't hear about this? And then the show closed at that point. The... Husband went back to Germany. Originally, he pled guilty in November 2016 and then tried to undo his plea, saying that his attorneys misled him. (laughs) Online, he used names like Lars45, LarsUSA22, and Lars Schmidt. I never read about this case. I wonder how they caught him. Like, there's some reason they came over to uh, search his house and his computer. It does say he was identified in August 2014, which was about a year and a half before they arrested him as a child porn collector. So, I'm guessing they probably identified him the same way they identify a lot of these child porn guys. And that is the feds infiltrate these child porn rings online and then get warrants to track down the IPs in these groups and then link it to real people. And then they start investigating them and then eventually they get the search warrant come in and grab the computer and find it on there. I don't think finding child porn just on a computer without further evidence is enough because it could be planted. But that plus evidence the person is attempting to collect it is probably enough. There's no question here he admitted that 
he collected this child porn because he was bored and was doing meth. I don't know what that has to do with it. Okay, that's it. We're done. So believe it or not, this was a two-month show tonight. We began in February. We ended in March. You know what's weird is being at the end of February, which doesn't go to the 30th. Most years it's the 28th. And then just jumping into March, it feels so strange to talk about the dates in the following week. So like, I was just talking about that earlier today, where it was February 28th, and then I was talking about Tuesdays. And Tuesday is March 5th. And I'm like, no, that's not March 5th. And I was told, no, it really is March 5th. I'm like, how can it be March 5th on Tuesday if it's still February right now on Thursday? But yeah, it actually goes from Thursday, February 28th to Tuesday, March 5th. And it just seems so strange to me. Anyway, we will be back on Wednesday, March 6th. We're going to transition back to a Wednesday show. Maybe we'll finally have Calwatt back. He's trying. He's trying to take naps. He's trying to get himself back in the habit of staying up late to do the show. And I hope we get him back. I miss having him. I'm not sure what else to say here. I sometimes I have a, I'm at a loss for words at the end of the show. Sometimes is that I've spoken for so long. The show's been on for what four and a half hours or something, maybe even longer. Kind of lost track. And, and then we get to this final two minute segment, and sometimes I don't know what to say anymore. And this, this is one of those times. I will tell you, we're up to the. Seven-year anniversary of Poker Fraud Alert. Poker Fraud Alert started on March 2nd, 2012. Thank you for being here for the time you have, if it's from the beginning or you found it recently. I'm glad to have you here, and I'm glad the site is still up and running after all this time. And should be for the foreseeable future. That is all for tonight. See you in six days on the 6th. Shalom. Shalom.